Hi, friends. Join us as we dive into the themes, metaphors, and foreshadowing of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. We are your hosts, Leah, Sarah, Tabby, and whether you're a new viewer or a longtime fan, welcome to Becoming Buffy. Hey guys, welcome back to Becoming Buffy. Today we are talking about season four, episode 10, Hush. And I have bad news and good news. So the bad news is Leah is not here because she's sick. And before you all exit out, because I know like that's 95% of you, <laughs> you know, you're here for the three sentences Leah gives each episode. No, she talks more than that. Um, <laughs> She says she's sorry. She wishes she could be here, but we brought our brother David with us as a replacement. And because Leah really counts as two people, we brought Catherine, his wife, as well. <laughs> um, no, that's how much that's how much weight you pull, Leah. So don't get sick too often. But we're really, really excited to have David. This is the first episode for I think I think season four, right? I, yeah, you haven't been in the season yet. Yeah, the last one I did was uh, the. First part of the season three finale. Graduation oh, day part right. one. That's right. Yeah. It feels like so long ago. And then we also have Catherine here, which I'm really excited about. And you guys are going to crack up because <laughs> the last guest we had on was Kimberly, Catherine's sister. So we talked about you mm-hmm. the last episode. So the listeners at least know who you are. Um, but welcome. I'm really oh, I'm really excited. I hope you're all here. good things. <laughs> no. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> we just mad crap you and then don't cut it out. <laughs> yeah. Leave it on and then be, be like, come, come back next week to hear Catherine, actually. <laughs> Imagine this episode, I just drag Kimberly and then we go back and forth. There you go. <laughs> and then one day you both come on the same episode and it's just frigid silence the entire time. <laughs> but we're really excited to have you. And Catherine has not watched all of Buffy. I think you know enough based upon like things we've talked to you about. You've also seen choice episodes before. Um, and I think you've seen Something Blue, which is the episode right before this because you're watching it with Kimberly. I, I've seen solidly up to like, I think season two, episode three, and then like here and there episodes. Okay. Yeah. So you know enough to like grasp the characters and stuff. But this episode – we all agreed when David was suggesting having you watch it and come on. We all agreed this is completely number one, it's your aesthetic for with all the witchy vibes and just like the creepy Halloweenness. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really excited to hear what you thought of the episode because it's very different mm-hmm. from a lot of the other episodes of Buffy. I could tell, mm-hmm. I could tell that the vibe, like one, you could tell that this wasn't like carrying the narrative that the season is having along with it. So I didn't feel like I was missing too much context. Yeah. And I could also tell that the like the vibe of the writing and the quote unquote message, um, which can be debated, but like the message that it has is different from like the typical like Buffy message. Yeah. It's still very similar, but it's more cinematic, I think, than a lot of the yeah. episodes previous. Um, and I think too, it tends to carry along some of the themes of the season without you having to know the overarching 
theme. And I, mm-hmm. this is actually a huge episode that a lot of people show first-time viewers because it really captures your attention without you having to know too much of the backstory, unlike, you know, Passion or one of those other episodes where you're like, okay, let me give you like a full rundown of like who these characters are and what they mean to each other. Well, so. I think the theme of this episode really helps in having first-time viewers pop in because it's the whole point of like people aren't communicating when they can say words. Um, and then when words are taken away, all of a sudden they're every single person is in like some sort of either really bad communication with another person, not saying what they need to say or saying too much or just like just not believing somebody or whatever. And so all those arguments are coming to head and being resolved even when they're not speaking in this episode. So I feel like it's it. there's a lot of physical comedy, but there's also a lot of like, here's a lot of the issues in the beginning and then they're all solved later on. So I feel like if you're popping any, you don't know much about Buffy, you can kind of like figure out what's happening in this episode with each individual mm-hmm. storyline. There are also several like self-contained arcs for the characters themselves totally. throughout the episode. Um, and so even if you don't know anything about Buffy or the context or whatever, you can kind of get it. Be like, okay, Buffy and Riley are into each other, but they're not right. talking about it. And then by the end, there's this little arc of like, you know, discovery and then reconciliation and then like a little bit of romance and stuff going on as well. So it's easy for someone who doesn't really know what else is going on to pop in and still enjoy it. I feel like... Xander especially highlights that sort of arc in this episode between his relationship with Anya and also with Spike. Usually I hate Xander. I'm on the Xander hate train. (laughs) Welcome. Um, But I didn't. He was tolerable in this episode. Yeah. And you haven't seen him in most of season four, but he's actually like, I've had almost zero complaints with him this season. They really kind of recognize that, okay, this guy's been through some stuff. Just the fact that everybody else is in college and he's not able to be in college, like he thinks, oh, there's something wrong with me or I'm not as smart as people. Like he's kind of been forced to grow up in a lot of ways. Um, And so I think the writers recognize that. Doesn't mean he won't make mistakes later on. But I have been appreciating like the maturity that we've seen from him. And I think this episode kind of represented that while also not being like – making it completely unbelievable, you know? Like, there's still, like, remnants of past Xander there because, you know, he's still, like, what, at this point, a 19-year-old boy. So it would be unrealistic for him to suddenly have the maturity of a 30-year-old or something, you know? Yeah, Xander, Xander being humbled is great for his character. No, it totally is, 100%. Yes. Okay, so let's jump into it because, I mean, I always have a lot to say, but I have an, an extra amount to say because this episode combines two of my favorite things on the show and it gets me really geeked out. And one of those is um, the music, which I could talk about for like so long because Christoph Beck is the MVP and he just like poured his little heart into this. Um, the second thing is it has our first prophetic dream of the season. And I just eat those up because there's so much subtext that goes into that and so much foreshadowing. So yeah, prepare yourselves. All right. So Hush, written and directed by Joss Whedon, which of course, every episode that Joss writes and directs is just that much sharper than pretty much any other episode, aired December 14th, 1999. It was actually the last episode before Christmas break. So imagine watching this episode and then being like, oh my gosh, where's everything going to go from here into the next year? Um. So I have a weird tendency to want to downplay episodes that everyone absolutely adores and just say, oh, man, they're overrated. (laughs) You know what I mean? And I feel like when I come to this episode, I'm always like, okay, Hush is usually 
like lauded as the best Buffy episode ever. I think that's debated. I think it depends on your criteria. Um, but it is tight. When I was watching this, I was like, this is so fun to watch. And I think that not only is the tension and the storytelling just absolutely seamless, but in this day of scrolling on your phone while you're watching something on TV, you don't have the luxury of doing that because there's no dialogue. You have to watch the TV. And I think it was almost refreshing because you're forced to pay attention, but then it also kept your attention glued to the screen because of what was happening on it. So I just, I mean, every time I come back, I'm pleasantly surprised. There really isn't a lot of wasted space in Hush. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, in some of the other episodes, there'll be filler scenes or this or that or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, there really isn't a scene in this that doesn't drive the narrative forward. Um, so like what you were saying, Sarah, mm-hmm. it's very tight. Like the episode moves smoothly and quickly throughout the narrative. And then from the prophetic dream to the arrival of the gentleman to the conclusion, there isn't a lot of meandering and there really isn't a lot of time. Like the gentlemen show up quicker than I remembered them uh, showing up yeah. when I, cause I haven't, I haven't watched this episode in maybe a couple of years and they showed up a lot faster than I uh, have remembered them coming last time. And I feel like it's hard to do this every episode in like a series. Um, but I feel like you always know you're going to be set up for success. If you choose a theme or have an idea for an episode that you like, you feel like you could do so much with. So like this episode, I just the gentlemen themselves, not even the other storylines, but just the gentlemen themselves, I could watch an entire like series on. I think they're so interesting. I think the the idea, the aesthetic, um, how they kill, what they look like, their body language, all of that is so enthralling. Um, that yeah, alone is so interesting. And then you have the side storylines, and then you have everyone's voices being taken away. And I feel like because the story of this episode was so interesting they had an entire episode to flesh that out and like there was no room for anything else, which makes the episode feel fuller. Catherine and I were talking about that while we were watching the episode and the gentlemen are creepy, but they're kind of campy. Um, and mm-hmm. they're a little bit like silly at times. Oh, the clapping is so hilarious. Oh, well, when, when they're like floating down the hallway and, and pointing. they're like, this one yeah. should I kill? And they're like, no, 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 no. And they're like the finger wag. It's like, oh, no, no, no. Not 214, not 215. And then he finds 2H and he's like, this one? And everyone's like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> So I really like their their uh, uh, character design, I guess. Um, and I kind of wish that they had brought them back for like a later episode or something. I mean, spoiler they're all dying. But uh, maybe <laughs> I mean, like we saw the, their heads the Gentleman Part 2 or know. something. I don't know. <laughs> that was actually something I was wondering about the character design as I was looking at it. Because these are supposedly ancient beings, right? Yeah, they're in fairy but tales. they're dressed like they're from the 1930s or 40s. Yes. And then the year, like these sort of servitudes they have are wearing straight jackets. And I'm like, clearly something about them progressed through the ages. Like they definitely had like an aesthetic switch at some point. And like, <laughs> we gotta get with the times, guys. And then they were like, Well, we need to go to the dentist too. So like, you know, yep. it's time to go to the modern yeah, time. combination of like the early two thousands grill and yeah. like nineteen forties suit. And they had these insane mummy guys too. And I I mean I was thinking like, oh where'd they get these guys? Did they make them? Are they like corrupted people? Is this what happens to like the people whose hearts they steal, do they come back as these mummy guys? Mm. Um, 
you know, it's why are they wearing straight jackets? Like there's a bunch of questions with no right. real answers, but it just makes it a little bit more intriguing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about like the critical response and some of the nominations and stuff for this episode. Cause I mean, sometimes some Buffy episodes, I have such a problem finding information for it. And I really have to kind of like dig deep into some of like Reddit and some of the other episodes. And this one, it was just like, it seemed like there was quotes for every single scene and something for everything. So I really kind of had Are to. Are you like, telling me that the caveman bar episode is not widely? <laughs> <laughs> Fear bad, Fear man. Bad. Yes. <laughs> no, for That's sure. No, episode. the one that I had, I think I had to dig the deepest was bad eggs. Mm. I was like, there's nothing. Like the even the theme of the episode was like ridiculously hard to come up with because it was so all over the place. So after reading critical responses to the series in which the dialogue was praised as the most successful aspect of the show, Joss set out to write an episode almost completely devoid of speech. Only about 17 minutes of dialogue is presented in the entire 44 minutes of Hush. This episode was highly praised when it aired and was the only episode in the entire series to be nominated for an Emmy Award in Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. It also received a nomination for Outstanding Cinematography for a Single Camera Series. Which is insanity because this show is incredibly well-written and this is the only episode that it was nominated for its writing, which just blows my mind. It's because it's sci-fi slash fantasy and those don't get recognized yep. at, the, at the Emmys. I was yeah. going to say that too, Tabby. I think that the mm-hmm. uh, the subject matter, um, the old hoity-toity farty dudes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dusty and crusty 90-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's the technical term, actually. Especially, I feel like especially in the time period. True. For the 90s, you have to think, it was thought of as very juvenile. I think because the episode is so cine- like cinematic, I think people were like, oh, well, okay, this meets our standards for being entered in totally. for a nomination. So therefore, we will look, we'll allow it for this episode. I'm picturing the committee being the the gentleman guys clapping. They're like, oh, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yes. They're like, this one? No. Yeah. Well done. This well done. one? <laughs> <laughs> the finger troll gets me every time. He's like... <laughs> Uh, 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 uh. didn't say the magic word i hear dennis's voice from jurassic park in my mind oh my gosh hush is allison hannigan's favorite episode of the buffy series and the one nicholas brendan considers the most frightening series writer jane espenson stated the episode redefined what an episode of television could do Sarah Michelle Geller said, it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, this is great, a whole episode with no lines. I was like, this is a breeze, and boy, was I wrong. Um, and this episode continues to inspire so many shows today. I don't know if you guys have seen Only Murders in the Building, but the first season has an episode that is completely silent, and it's brilliant. It, it focuses on a deaf person, and so it shows a lot of the episode from his perspective, but then there are scenes where he's not even in it that they just have completely silent, and the characters are forced to interact in ways that are not verbal. And I just, I don't know. I don't know if it was directly inspired by this episode, but I've never seen another episode of television that's completely silent like this one. I thought it was very cool. Putting those kind of parameters, like Joss Whedon saying like, okay, I'm going to create an episode with minimal dialogue and Sarah Michelle Gellar noting that, oh, this is much harder. I feel like putting those parameters on yourselves can actually make you, can put you in a different creative headspace. And I think that's why the acting and the writing are just so more exceptional. It requires you to pull from different parts of yourself. And I think they all exercise those differences really well. They manifested very well. I agree. And Whedon 
Whedon definitely thought so. I early on wanted to do a show where people didn't talk. As the show went on, I became more and more obsessed with it because I felt as a director, I was degenerating. I was turning into a TV hack over, over, two shot, two shot, shot of him, shot of her. They're talking to each other, shot of them both and back. And I was beginning to fall into shorthand. One thing that I don't love about TV is that a lot of it is what I refer to as radio with faces. If you want to shoot a scene quickly, you put someone up against a wall, have them say their lines and boom, it's done. From the start, one of the important things about Buffy is that I wanted the show to work visually so much so that a Fox executive told me that I was putting too much visual information on every page that it was not going to be possible to shoot it. By the fourth year, I had kind of fallen into the people are yakking without really thinking about it, and I wanted to curtail that in myself. And so on a practical level, the idea of doing a show where everybody lost their voice presented itself as a great big challenge because I knew that I would literally have to tell the story only visually. That would mean I could not fall into tricks, which say what you will about Joss Whedon. He's a horrible person. But I appreciate someone who wants to challenge themselves and wants to push themselves and grow creatively. And I mean, this is the fourth season of Buffy. He could have coasted if he wanted to. Instead, he's pushing himself. And I would argue he continues to push himself up until the very end of the show um, with varying degrees of success. But this episode and then specifically two other episodes that I can think of off the top of my head are some of the most creative episodes. And I mean, people talk all the time about how the first three seasons of Buffy are the best and stuff. And I think maybe like from a story perspective, in some ways they kind of are, maybe, or I should say in a thematic way, they kind of are for a season long arc. But I I think the last four seasons of Buffy have some of the best episodes in the entire series, hands down. I would agree with that, Sarah. And um, I would say that at times I have actually been a little critical of Joss Whedon's um, reliance on witty dialogue. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely something he does well. And it's definitely something that he believes is a strength of his. And so I can see him rely on it a little too much sometimes. Like a good example of this would be um, Avengers Age of Ultron, the second Avengers yes. movie, yeah. Um, where I think he relied so heavily on the dialogue of the characters, especially Ultron, yeah, without relying on like intimidating presence and you know things like that and tone of the movie. That sometimes he goes a little too far. So seeing him do something like this, which is so far out of his wheelhouse, I actually thought was pretty cool. I yeah. think it's important. To have the, you know, we can we can bring this up. We talked about this before. But the whole divorce of the author, um, the importance of that when it comes to, to art. If you look throughout history, I was a literature major in college. And there are so many amazing books that are written by total scumbags. Um, but that doesn't take away from the greatness of the art and the message in the art. Or uh, from the message that other people can put into it. If someone reads a book that was written 500 years ago by somebody who did some horrible things, but they take from it something that's personal meaning to them, or if you watch Buffy and you get something that's personal meaning meaningful for you, doesn't mean that you have to support Joss Whedon. You can divorce him from his, uh, his creation. Mm-hmm. Once that art has been put out in the world, it is no longer controlled by the person that created it. It is open for interpretation by the masses. And I think that's a, a really important thing to understand mm-hmm. what consuming media that is made by people whose viewpoint you don't believe in or you don't agree with, or maybe have done things that are uh, you know, reprehensible in the past. I, I think it's super important to um, 
point out the good things that the artist has done as well as the bad. Very well said, David. And I also feel like because art is such a personal mm-hmm. thing, like the way you experience mm-hmm. art and enjoy art is very personal. But the fact that, like, again, he put all these boundaries on his creative process and he creates something that is universally experienced as good. Like this is, like you said, like this is an episode that people will show to first timers because it is just of such a high quality of writing and acting. It's like a really good example of like the peak of the show and what it can deliver. And I feel like that's how you know art is good. It's not just like, oh, this one or two people are having this personal experience, but everyone who is watching it is having this deep personal experience. I forget where I heard this from, but it's like that saying of um, art is living is a living and breathing entity and it, it changes as you change. It's not like you you write this down on paper and it means one thing. It'll always mean that one thing. It grows and it changes and it changes as viewpoint as you change your viewpoint. And I just love that. Same thing with books, same thing with music. It's like, that's why music is like people just cope so much with watch or listening to it or watching television. It's like the person may have had one purpose of writing it, but then every single person views it differently. And as they change, the music changes with them because it means something different to them at that point in their life. Um, And maybe this is like way too deep just for one episode of Buffy, but like, I I don't know. That's what makes art, you know? Yeah. No, I don't think, I don't think anything's too deep for Buffy because I mean, if we're still talking about this show 20 plus 25 plus years later and, you know, scholars are still writing papers on it and stuff like there's something deep and meaningful that, that people are taking away from it. So Yeah. Also, and I'm, I'm a big fan of just, you can think deeply about pretty much anything too. So, I mean, you have an entire podcast with a couple hundred episodes now about Buffy. If it wasn't deep and meaningful <laughs> to you, I don't think you'd be talking about it this much. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. So Whedon thought for sure viewers would find the episode boring and was worried that he would fail to present the show in a novel way. Initially, this was to be the episode where Riley and Buffy have sex, and Whedon took comfort in that plan because he knew people would not mind the silence, but ultimately he decided it was too early for the characters to sleep together, and he scrapped the idea, which I'm really thankful for because that would have been – I think that would have been a little weird. This is the first episode they've kissed, too. Like, they're just going to go straight from that into that. And there are a lot of things that happen in this episode that are big, like the introduction of Tara and then Tara meeting Willow. Um, Like we were saying earlier, just the pacing of the episode is already pretty jam-packed. Adding Riley and uh, Buffy having sex in this would, I think, been a little too much. Yeah, I I could not imagine them introducing, like, the sexual element of the relationship into this episode. It, It feels like there's already so much going on and especially with the way that like you said like there's the first kiss and also at the end they like learn who each other really is they like encounter each other in their quote-unquote true forms like to add another like element of the relationship on top of that would be it would be so money and it would feel very forced i feel like it would take away from the episode from being like a very interesting um again episode about like communication and make it more of a Riley Buffy relationship episode. Yeah, and it also like I think it's better to save them having sex for when they both have had a conversation about who they really are. I think that's much more meaningful. Um and I think that it would have cheapened the relationship and also like Buffy's coming out of a betrayal with Parker and then break up with Angel. She needs to trust someone before she can jump into that. And I think Joss realized that. So, 
Bravo, Joss. He's you like, are. I'll just wait for all of the the angst with them to have an entire episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That. We're gonna talk about that episode. Oh my lord! <laughs> He's like, I'm gonna save it for an entire episode where all they do is just have sex. Don't worry, guys. The sex episode is still coming. So, oh, good lord! Are you guys yeah. having any uh, interesting guests on for that one? You're coming on for that one. Yeah, you, you said oh, you I am? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> You chose it too. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for later on the season, guys. If that is not a plug for that episode, then I don't know what is. <laughs> That's hilarious. You can bring your wife. Catherine, would you like to come on for the sex episode? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, she oh, she have does have opinions. Oh, do not. I have opinions on sex and media. Joss went on to say, writing it, I was terrified. I was more terrified than I was with certain episodes in season six that I just couldn't pull it off. When we were shooting it, everyone knew their action, but there were no lines. There was no rhythm. There were no cues. Everyone would do everything all at once. We had no way to communicate a rhythm. And I read this from multiple sources. Whenever they had like the big group scenes, people would just start like mouthing over each other and doing everything because they were like they were used to having a verbal cue and said they had to rely on visual cues and it was just it was very strange for everyone. Okay, so let's talk about the gentleman real fast. Um, this was really really interesting to me and this kind of answers some of your questions, Catherine, on why Joss decided to dress the gentleman and have them portrayed in a certain way. So Passion of the Nerd talks about how the gentleman work as kind of a patriarchal symbol as well as an ugly sexual one, which. I kind of cracked up a little bit because I was like, I feel like every time David comes on, we're always talking about like the the episode with like the weird sexual symbols and this one's no (laughs) different. So buckle up, everyone. (laughs) In an interview, Whedon described them as Victorian, representing a certain class. They are all prim and proper and polite while terrorizing the towns they come in. Um, And this quote is from Passion of the Nerd, not Joss Whedon. They live in a giant phallus. They are all white and, as the name suggests, men. And in the episode, they invade the personal space of their victims, penetrate their bodies, and float away with their hearts. And notice Buffy turned Riley into one of them in her dream. And he goes on to talk about how the classic moment where Giles and with Giles and the slides, and it has that funny moment where Buffy, you know, it makes it look like she's masturbating and she's that sexual hand motion to symbolize staking. And then Willow also points to her chest when Giles asks, what do they want? And then Xander immediately goes to boobies. Basically, the gentlemen form like a sort of institution with their smiles, polite mannerisms, put together suits, and small insulated As they rip out your heart. (laughs) As they rip out your heart, yes. But the idea is like it's it's a sexual metaphor for your body being used without your consent. Um, And that's why you have repeated uh, sexual symbols and things like that throughout. um, And then they literally silence you so that you can't say anything about it. And that's the next thing. That's interesting because if they are representative of a patriarchal institution, the way larger institutions maintain power is through silence. Yeah. Um, and I and I wrote that down too. I was like, which if you think about it, um, the gentlemen are used as an analogy for evil, rich, and powerful people taking advantage of vulnerable people. And it's made worse because their weapon is not just the silence of the victim, it's the silence of the whole community. And the thing that undoes their weapon, essentially, and a, a powerful way to fight back is the scream of a woman. Or it's the voice of the victim that rises up against them. And I was like, wow, I'd never thought of that before. And I think that's such a powerful imagery. 
They're also their henchmen slash monsters are in straight jackets. So it's like the restriction of just people in general. And they're doing all the physical dirty work for them. Like the the people or the monsters or whatever and um straight jackets are the ones that are like physically fighting Buffy. And then the, the lower gentlemen class, are the ones just taking out yeah. like the hearts. That's yeah. a good point, Tabby, because the, the gentlemen don't even sully yeah. themselves to touch the ground. They literally exactly. float over the ground. All their uniforms are pristine, you know, mm-hmm. nice press, spotless. They make um, all the decisions. Yeah. And and even when they like take the hearts out, they use a, a scalpel. So they don't even like rip the heart out themselves or anything. They, they don't get dirty. They use a scalpel. They make a nice little incision um, while their little insane dudes are um, you know, holding, holding them down, down. And everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's interesting. Yep. It's sort of like a, a demonstration of how every system of power, authoritarian system of power has to have an enforcer mm-hmm. class. Cause there is the, they have to maintain the idea that they're the ideal. They're pure. They're sophisticated. They would never sully themselves and get dirty and be the ones to enforce the oppression. Yep. Noel Murray from the AV Club writes that the silence imposed by the gentleman is a metaphor for how evil spreads. When dissent is stifled or people fail to tell the truth or when we're just distracted by other concerns, things can get out of hand. Authority figures in the series, such as the school principal, the mayor's office, and the Sunnydale Police Department repeatedly either abet the town's endemic evil or choose not to hear about it. During Hush at Giles' apartment, the Scoobies listen to a newscaster reporting that the authorities in the town attribute the silence to a flu vaccine gone awry causing mass laryngitis. Wilcox writes, How many times will we see those in power maintain such a silence while evil proceeds? It is not surprising that the gentlemen's attendants wear straight jackets. Their garb suggests the insanity of such behavior. The pretense of civilized politeness while killing is accepted as a matter of course. It's funny because as we were watching... I noted the lack of patrol cars around. And, and, like, I don't know, like, there was no mention of, like, a curfew being imposed or things. But, like, during the day, it shows scenes of chaos. There's, like, that little um, meet that Buffy and Riley have in the street where he's, like, separating two guys fighting. And there's, like, a car that ran into a post or something. And I'm like, where are the cops? <laughs> like, I I understand no one can call 911. But I feel like they would know what is going on and patrol would be massively up. But there's no one around. Yeah, that's a really good point. And there's a glaring lack of police presence in this season. And I think that's because they're trying to have the initiative take over that because they're the government presence. And like that'll be explained more later. But it's funny because then you get to season five and six and seven and the police suddenly pop back in. So I think there's a – like it's supposed to be – like Riley and the initiative is supposed to take that place. But I would think that you would still have the police there as well because that's less of a disturbance than the the military. Exactly. I was thinking about this though because they're like, all right, go help spread order. Well, okay. If some random college kid comes up to me and (laughs) is like, hey, buddy, uh, why don't you calm down? I'm like, who the heck are you? Like, (laughs) I mean, obviously they can't like talk in this situation, but like the only thing that gives – 18 to 25 year old men credibility is a uniform. Uh, yeah, other than that, nobody's going to listen to them. 
So the gentlemen are called the creepiest villains we've ever done by series writer Doug Petrie. They were inspired by a nightmare Whedon had as a child, specifically one in which he was in bed and approached by a floating monster. Whedon fashioned the gentlemen as something from a Brothers Grimm fairy tale, intending them to be frightening to children, monsters who carve out people's hearts, smiling as they do so. Nosferatu, Pinhead from Hellraiser, and Mr. Burns from The Simpsons all served as physical models for the gentlemen, elegantly Victorian in costume and demeanor, Whedon found their politeness and grace especially unsettling. Their metallic teeth were inspired by the intersection of Victorian culture with the height of the industrial age, an era that Whedon considers classically creepy. I applaud again, Whedon, for taking the thing of his nightmares and putting that on television because I don't know how you would be able to actually go to bed at night seeing your like literal nightmare float by you on a day-to-day basis for like two weeks. No, thank you. That's just like, yeah, I guess it makes sense that he's a twisted man because I feel like only a twisted person would actually want to do that. <laughs> Put themselves through that kind of torture. Yeah. Maybe there's a sense of ownership in putting your nightmare on screen and then being like, mm. I manifested that, I created that, I own that. And yeah. then it, it lets you have a little sense of power over it. Yeah, you don't feel as scared about it. control. Because- yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's a good point. I always forget that this start of this episode is here because it just feels so uncomfortable and then I forget it's a dream every time. I'm like, what teacher would make their <laughs> students sit It's on such desk? a random way to start the episode it because it's like we just jump right in the middle of a conversation and we're like, oh, okay. And like the episode starts moving from the beginning. Yeah. Like it's already started moving before the cameras roll. And I think that's part of what is really cool about this episode. I literally forgot, Tabby, that it was a dream too. And the whole time uh-huh. I was like, man, this is so awkward. <laughs> 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 and maybe it's just like the the rigid body acting of like, I, mean, I don't want to say body acting, but just the chemistry between like Riley and Buffy. I'm like, y'all, this is so stiff. Like, come on. <laughs> so Especially coming off of Angel. Uh, yeah. Like Angel and Buffy's chemistry is pretty palpable at times. Yeah. And you can tell that they're like good friends off scene, off screen. And they just like, they get along naturally. And then Buffy and Riley together and you're like, do you guys These are strangers. like each other? These are strangers. <laughs> you cannot convince me otherwise that they just pulled a random person in for the scene to have this. Anyway, I'm really trying not to crap on Riley and Buffy as much, but. We start out with a scene like this. It's hard for me not to. So fun fact about this scene, though. Um, So on the DVD commentary track, Joss Whedon said that they wanted to pack the audience, in quotation, during the dream sequence in which Buffy and Riley kiss for the first time. So they not only filled the seats with extras, they also corralled the staff from the production offices and that day's set visitors and had them fill the seats and sit in the aisles as well. Could you imagine having to do this scene with – a bunch of random people. Like, I can't even imagine. So another fun fact is um, this is actually the first time that you see Andy Hallett on screen, even though he hasn't popped over on Angel yet. He plays the character of Lorne over on Angel. He's in this scene. Is he and really? He was actually, yeah, he was actually an assistant for, I want to say like Joss Whedon, Joss Whedon's wife. Some He's an assistant for somebody higher up. And um, so that's why he would have been like around and on set. And then he ends up being a, they created the character Lauren for him later on um, in a couple of seasons or something. But yeah, he's like two seats up from Buffy if you want to find him. So, no way. Yeah. That's crazy. Yep. yep. 
One of my favorite things that Buffy does as a show is, and we talked about this on a podcast a lot, but it honestly just like it, it rings true every single freaking time. I think Sarah knows what I'm about to say. If you ever want to know what the theme of an episode is, just listen to the teacher talking and it tells you yeah. immediately right away. And every yep. single like high school episode, the very first episode, the teacher writes death underlined. And you're like, okay, I get to where the show is going. Yeah. But she calls Buffy up. Tells her to lie on the desk and then is like, oh, we're doing a demonstration. And then Riley comes out and she's like, I don't even – she tells him to like lean over and he's like, if I kiss you, the sun will go down. Can Sarah, can you like tell me what that means? I don't – I don't understand. All right. So let me like break down what's happening. So obviously it's a dream. It's prophetic. There's a couple different things happening here. It's foreshadowing a few things like the sun we talked about in the Faith and Buffy dream sequence. You had the sun as well there. Um, and then you also had little Miss Muffet counting down to 730. Um, you have, there's a bunch or counting down from 730. There's a bunch of, um, symbolic things involving the sun. So the fact that like the script even says it's supposed to be like golden hour, the sun shining through, and then it gets dark. Um, there is an instance, a very important instance later on where the sun rises. And so I think this is foreshadowing that. The other thing that's happening in this episode is this is also Buffy's subconscious talking. So the whole thing of Buffy laying down on the desk and then Riley kissing her. It's supposed to be the fairy tale of the princess laying down and being kissed and awoken and stuff. And the thing is, though, as soon as Buffy's kissed, the sun goes down and then she walks out and then you see the supposedly smaller version of Buffy singing. And then Riley comes up behind her, puts his hand on her shoulder. And then when she turns around, it's the gentleman. Um, and that's really significant because Buffy is really concerned and worried about her relationship just with guys right now. This has been something that's been uh, weighing heavily on her this season with Parker betraying her. And so subconsciously, we see that affecting her. But then also in the rest of the episode, we see that affecting her because she doesn't know what to say to Riley when they're together. And it affects them being able to move forward in their relationship because she doesn't fully trust him yet. I think subconsciously, she senses that there's something else about him that maybe he's not telling her. But I think even more than that, she doesn't feel comfortable with him because she's not able to be her full self around him because she isn't able to tell him about being the slayer. And so this whole thing of her being kissed and then Riley turning into the gentleman is her subconscious telling her not to trust Riley because if she does kiss him and they move forward in their relationship, he might turn out to be the villain instead of the prince in her dreams. Um, and so Joss kind of entangles that with the gentleman. And it's not only a foreshadowing of the gentleman, but it's also kind of a foreshadowing that Buffy is not going to be the damsel in distress. Buffy's going to kind of subvert all of that. Um, so that's what that means. There's also a very important line that the script has that they actually cut out of the episode that I'm like, I wish they had been kept doing in. for so many episodes, cutting out like yeah. the most important parts. Yeah. So um, when Buffy gets up, you know, she says, fortune favors the brave. Um, and that line is not terribly significant. It's basically just saying, you know, courageous actions are often rewarded. And it's a proverb from the Roman poet Virgil. It's actually um, John Wick's tattoo as well, <laughs> which is kind of hilarious. Um, so when she gets up and she starts to walk towards the classroom, as she heads out and she hears 
the girl singing, Riley watches her go. He smiles to himself and then he whispers very quietly. He says, along came a spider. Oh, I, I totally missed that. Well, he, it's not in the episode. It's only in the script. Oh, they cut it out. Yeah. So hopefully that clears it up a little bit for you. It's supposed to be like intentionally ambiguous, but it's supposed to be a mix up of both Buffy subconscious and foreshadowing because Got that's it. how dreams are. It's a little bit of the ridiculous, a little bit of truth and a little bit of a fantasy. I thought too that uh, when he says to her, like, if you kiss me, that the sun will go down. Like Buffy's entire life is lived after dark. Like that's when she does her patrol. That's when she gets to be like who she really is. Right. Um, and so I think like what you were saying, Sarah, there's, there's a little lo- level of fear in her subconscious that Riley doesn't know her. Right. And so she's longing for him to know her. So when he kisses her and says that is him implying, if you do kiss me, I, I'll get to know you and I'll get to see who you actually mm-hmm. are. Um, but then that when the sun goes down and, it reveals who she is. It leads right into him turning into the monster. So there's that level of anxiety there too. Mm-hmm. I just, that's how I interpreted it when I was watching it. Totally. That's, that's exactly how I interpreted it as well. Um, because I just have the vacuum of this episode. I don't have the context of the whole season. Right. I was like, cause in the, in the episode they do kiss, which apparently is for the first time, which I didn't yes. know, but they kiss for the first time. And then the next scene they have together is when they encounter each other as their as the slayer and as the soldier. So I feel like it was prophetic in that sense, where it's like he did kiss her, and then the sun did go down, and he saw Buffy for who Buffy was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally, and um, it's really interesting because there are several what we call threshold moments in this episode, and they're usually shown metaphorically as well as literally. So in this moment, they kiss and the sun goes down. That's a threshold moment. The sun is was up and it goes down. There's another threshold moment, and it's the moment in the laundry room with Tara and Willow. They literally clasp hands, and the machine runs or gets moved directly in front of a doorway, a threshold, showing an, another threshold moment for Willow. That one's quite less uh, subtle. <laughs> <laughs> no, you think so? <laughs> I yes, mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. When we get there. Yeah. We'll get there eventually. But Kath and I were laughing because uh, how, you know, when Tara runs into Willow and it's literally like the first time they meet, I was like, meet cute. And then <laughs> Kath was just laughing. <laughs> which which is, is hilarious. And again, we'll talk about it. But they – did not write they did not write Tara to be a love interest in this episode. It was not none of this was meant to be really? romantic, but yes, she was only supposed to be. Also Hannigan was doing it in the work and not look though. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Maybe like, Josh watched it later and it was like, whoa, the sexual tension is like super high. <laughs> Maybe I should make her romantic. <laughs> um okay, so before we move on, I want to talk real fast about the camera movement in the episode because this episode has so much dynamic movement, probably more so than any other episode I've seen. And Joss really loves his moving shots, but literally every shot, except for the ones that are close up to a character, every single shot is moving. Um, so there's this quote, don't don't laugh at me. It's from lawyersgunsmoneyblog.com. <laughs> it's a political blog. How did you end up on that <laughs> website, Sarah? <laughs> oh, I have my ways. No, um, like beers, boobs, and, <laughs> and yeah, <babes. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds like a website that that podcast would go on. 
but they had a really – they were talking about this episode and they had a really interesting point. Um, so the author talks about how Joss has the camera moving constantly. They also go on to talk about how the characters are forced to overact in a way because it's the only way the characters can communicate. But it still comes across naturally. And they say, looking concerned no longer communicates being worried unless, as per the last frame above, that concern is exaggerated. In some, Whedon is setting the audience up by having it pay closer attention to facial expressions than they otherwise would. Why would he do that? Meet the episode's antagonist. They would be the gentlemen, and creepy as they would be otherwise, their creepiness is heightened by the fact that in an episode that keys the audience to pay attention to the plasticity of faces, theirs don't move. And I was like, snap. That I, I just never thought of that before. Everything's moving except for the gentlemen's faces, and that's so terrifying. That is super terrifying. You know what's interesting is I was just thinking while you were talking about that, um, the gentlemen, like when you think of gentlemen, you think of people who are super nice and go out of their mm-hmm. way to be like uh, respectful yep. and everything like that. These guys are like the ultimate nice guys. Like yeah. they're, you know, they're dressed nice and they have a smile and they're like all polite, but then they literally just kill you and then silence you about it. Yep. And I think mm-hmm. that was the point of it. It kind of, it kind of reminded me of like, the musical Into the Woods a bit. Yes. Because there's a whole thing in that. It's like, you know, there's a difference between good, bad, and nice. Yeah. Like, nice can cover anything. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. the the Prince Charming in Into the Woods is the nicest person, but he cheats in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, is, like, a total, like, douchebag. Right. And I think that's the thing. N- especially in a society with a structure politeness can cover a multitude of sins or if you don't know what to say about somebody you just go oh yeah they they were nice they seem nice it's not like oh they were like i don't know a good person they listened really well they were there for me you know whatever it's like oh they were nice it's usually what you see yeah it's a very like generic term to use yeah going back to the prophetic dream well, and then she's holding the box, too. This is one of those situations that's like, thank God Buffy has prophetic dreams. Otherwise, she would <laughs> never know that the box would, like, hold everyone's voices. Yep. But to be fair, though, if they're having, like, a shrine with all of the hearts, I feel like I would have put two and two together with the box in the direct center. Well, Riley didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Riley's not paid. He's so proud think. of himself, too. His little yeah, he's like, I did it. Very clearly not paid to think. Yeah. That's the thing. Such a soldier. He's supposed to be, like, a TA and a psychology major. And, like, I'm like, this boy does not have a thought in his head. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Buffy wakes up in the middle of class. Willow's messing with her, saying that the class is super important. She missed all the important details. And poor Buffy's like, I'm that sorry, I worked the nighttime <laughs> shift. Like, my whole evening is built with my other second job. Um, So they're walking out. She's saying that she had a dream. And then freaking Riley pops up. Is like, was I in it? Get out, Riley. Oh, no. <laughs> Riley's nice. I like Riley. And we will slander him when Sarah's he actually the only Riley apologist to this I think he's a nice guy. He's boring, sure. He's boring. He's bland. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that he's bad. That is the exact critique I gave. I'm like, because I know a little bit about who he becomes. Mm. But I was like, I'm like, I don't feel anything for him yeah. anyway. <laughs> there's like, there's no emotion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not a bad guy. He just kind of gives me the ick sometimes. That's it. You ever have a, a friend who has a significant other, either boyfriend or girlfriend, that you literally forget exists? And you're like, hey, let's go out and like meet girls. And they're like, I have a girlfriend. You're like, oh, that's right. You do. <laughs> it's literally Riley. <laughs> he just pops up. You're like, oh, oh, jump scare. 
Riley. <laughs> Jump scare, Riley. <laughs> Not the gentleman. You know, I mean, every time we turn around and see the gentleman, we're like, ah, Riley's it's Riley. Hair. There it is. Does it have greasy uh, hair? Oh I'm just, it's all jokes. He's very attractive. Mark Lucas is very attractive. It's just Riley that annoys me. Anyway, okay. So he's like, was I in the dream? And then they're like, awkwardly talking about her dream will is being a good friend and like excuses herself and then like make sure that they have a time alone they walk outside and they're talking about the things they have to do that night even though both of them are lying and then she's like <laughs> what papers do you have to grade and he's like um i do i do like that moment because like it shows that even though buffy is taken by riley romantically like her slayer senses are still they're still working i like that she like clues in like you don't have any other papers you should be grading like and i think that goes to her subconscious knows that riley's not being completely truthful with her like she senses something is up also this moment as they walk outside you can hear the bell chime and we've never heard a bell chime ever before and it's like they're reminding us hey this town has a clock tower that we've never showed you before (laughs) (laughs) so we see in giles's house that buffy is calling him telling him about the rhyme and what that means and then he reassures her he's going to check it out. And then Spike just pops up and is like arguing with him about the groceries. So last episode, Spike was chained to the bathtub and now he's allowed <laughs> to just roam around in the pantry. Like what a change. Oh my gosh. You could tell that Giles is annoyed with him, but he's like, you're not a threat. Whatever. You could do what you want. And he plops on the couch and Giles is just like, oh, whatever. And is like researching. Um, and then Giles, outside, man. <laughs> I know. He gets like his whole solitude is like, interrupted and invaded by everyone this episode especially when he has like olivia over he's like can i just have my adult life separated from these like newly adult kids for once it's either xander with him or it's spike like the last episode was him eating fruit roll-ups with um or no it was two episodes ago he was he's like get that out of my face. face you smell like fruit roll-ups yeah fruit punch in xander's basement and then you know here he has spike in his pantry he's probably like give me a real adult conversation please oh i totally forgot where olivia's from in the rest of the series but um Catherine and i are laughing at it because uh, the entire series, Giles is just pulling baddies the whole time. No, Giles gets babes. He gets babes. Yeah, for real. That's what I wrote too. I was like, I mean, he got Joyce, he got Jenny, and now he gets Olivia. I was Olivia's like, and gorgeous. So funny because in an episode where all of the teenagers are having trouble communicating and getting along, Giles is out there like, hey, get out. I've got <laughs> my girl. In. And yeah, she real. walks right in and she's like, that's enough talk. And he's like, say no more. And I was like, dang, Giles really knows how to pull them. Well, I think it's it's like the, the contradiction, not the contradiction, but like the flip side of everyone else. It's like him and Olivia, the communication isn't the issue. It's more of like, we don't really want to communicate. We're just having a physical relationship, whereas everyone else is wanting more. Yeah, but I think they both already talked about it, so they're fine with it. They make a contrast with Giles and everybody else because Giles is supposed to be the adult, and this is a coming-of-age story. So if everybody's struggling to communicate, that's because that's a typically young person problem when it comes to relation. Well, I'm generalizing, but you know what I mean? Like young people are still trying to figure out how to communicate and what they want to do and how, how they like things and stuff. So, yeah. Well, oh my gosh, poor Giles. Cause then like Xander and Anya come, they're arguing about what their relationship is and Xander's not sure. And Anya's like the ex demon that she is, is being so blunt. They just come right in. And then Giles is like, thank you for knocking. (laughs) 
<laughs> and Anya's like, I don't know if you care. All you care about is a lot of orgasms. And then Spike just like leans up from the couch with such a judgmental look. <laughs> Spike is so nosy for someone who like. Well, he's all depressed. He can't do the things that he likes. So he's like, yes, gossip. Please tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and him and Giles like watching um, Passions. Yeah, they're watching Passions, Passions with each other every night too. Yeah. And then Xander's all like, hey, we've talked about this. Don't say, like, embarrassing stuff around my friends. And Spike is like, oh, we're not friends. Go on. <laughs> Joss is like, please is don't. <laughs> all in that tea. Oh, gosh. And then um, Giles asks Xander to come and take Spike home because Olivia, his friend, is coming. And then Anya's like, oh, you mean an orgasm friend? <laughs> Joss is like, that's exactly the thing I would not want you to say. And then there's a, there's a um, line that's cut out. Spike says, worse than the blood in the Weedabix. And then Giles just sinks back into his chair, defeated as everyone talks over each other. Um, so in like the lounge seating area at school, we see the Wicca group that Willow's been talking about the past couple episodes. It's just funny. Like they're all like doing all these like like praying to goddesses and then talking about bake sales and then how they have like sage and candles and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then Will is like, hey, how about we uh, do some spells? And they're all like, oh, that's ridiculous. And you see Tara trying to speak, poor thing. They're so condescending. They're like, hey, guys, wait. Tara, do you have something to say? I was like, oh, my word, this poor girl. That That's something I noted about, like, the dynamics of the Wiccan group. A and I can't speak to, like, what the thought and, like, understanding of, like, what witchcraft in Wicca was at the time that this was written and shot. But this is something, it's a critique I have of Buffy in general, but it's, again, highlighted in this instance where I've I've met people who are Wicca, and I've met people who, like, claim to practice witchcraft, and they, like, they don't scoff when you are, like, ask them about magic and ask them about, like, possibly, like, practicing a ritual or trying to attempt a spell. Usually they're, like, they believe they have some sort of access to that kind of power. Definitely not the way that, like, Willow does, but in the reality that I've seen and, like, the people I've met who do practice witchcraft and do identify as Wiccan, they are fully involved. So, like, the moment you bring up, like, the moment you would ask, like, what Willow asks, it's like, can we do some spells? All the people that I know are, like, would be like, hell yeah, let's do some spells. <laughs> let's do some witchcraft. Well, to, to be... To be fair, they even talk about that in the next scene where uh, Willow goes like, oh, any girl with the spice rack, you know, thinks she has access to the dark one or the dark powers. Or I forget how she words it, but they're even kind of making fun of these like, like the phony Wiccans, yeah. you know, the ones who are kind of just like pretending to be I don't think they actually are. It. Yeah. I think it's more of like, like even the way they talk about it, none of them actually do practice any spells. Yeah. Joss actually – highlights this as he wrote this to be writ like written in a specific way. He says the misuse of the word empowering, people just using language to block themselves from expressing themselves. And um then Buffy analysts Alice Jenkins and Susan Stewart called this pseudo conversations, referring to it as locutionary acts, language that is formed to have meaning but does not engage the listener. Basically highlighting this group is pretending to be one way or they're saying they're one thing but then the way that they actually the way that they actually put that to actions there's a disconnect between their language and their actions and so Joss is highlighting that ultimately to push Tara and Willow together 
but it's supposed to be just another representation of uh, communication breakdown. And that was supposed to be Willow's frustration in this episode because Willow's not in a relationship. So she has to be frustrated with the communication with somebody and the Wiccan group was how they decided to do it. So like, I think Joss and the writers would agree with you, Catherine, that like, this isn't actually how a Wiccan group would uh, conduct themselves, you know? And to be fair, this is also like your local college freshman Wiccan group where people yeah, are just like, they it. don't, yeah, they don't know anything. Mm-hmm. They're romanticizing it. Like you're saying, Tabby and, you know, you get a bunch of uh, 19-year-olds out there who want to, like, do something edgy. Um, and so they're, <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, let's gather together and, like, pray to Gaia. It's like, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You know, they're they're all about right. bake sales and Gaia mm-hmm. posters and stuff like that, you know. It, it sort of reminded me um, of a quote from a Terry Pratchett book, actually, um, where one of them was about, like, this small coven of witches. And they're having to deal with this group of, like teenagers teenage girls in their town who don't want to go through like the formal initiation and like be properly taught and this old witch who's in the coven and she's like ugh, these these new ones would think that you can paint your fingernails black and then like you know say a couple things to the trees and you're a witch and it's like Mm -hmm. that kind of Mm -hmm. attitude where Mm -hmm. it is more of like an aesthetic of empowerment rather than an actual ritual and practice. Right. And I think you could say that about pretty much anything too. Are you actually living out what you're saying? Are you actually doing what you believe? And I think that's just highlighted in this particular group right here. It's so crazy though that in Sunnydale, the people are like, magic? Are you kidding me? I know. Me? It's not real. And it's <laughs> that's like, what I was thinking. <laughs> magic For stuff real. happens like every other day in there. <laughs> Denial. I would literally be like, teach me the magic, the protection spells, (laughs) please. Like, (laughs) for real. Then Will is saying that that Buffy and Riley need to get to the smoochies so she can have live vicariously through them. Um, And then Buffy is like, well, I just get nervous around him and a babble because every time I talk to him, I have to lie about who I am. Uh, And then we see the flip side in the initiative, and then Riley's just like, well, Buffy's just special. Okay. In the tinfoil pit over here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Passion of the Nerd had the funniest quote. So he says, he was like, Riley is also trying to work out his side of things with Buffy. The only problem is all he has to talk to is Forrest and Forrest kind of sucks. I started wondering, is that oh the only gosh, reason yes. Forrest is in this season to make Riley look good? And I was like, yeah. I think so. And that just absolutely sucks because, again, another person of color is put in a position where they are just meant to service the white person or they get killed off or like it's just it sucks. Yeah. Catherine literally mentioned that. She was like, yeah, his kind of racist black friend. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, not the character. He's not racist. But like just having the black like um, like sidekick character. It's like the bitchy black best friend. That's what uh, he is. Faux inclusion. Instead of actually yeah. writing people of color into dynamic people that affect the plot, yeah. you just have yeah. them yeah. as an accessory to one of your characters. Yeah. Forrest's only purpose is so far has just been to have Riley realize he likes Buffy. That's literally his only purpose. Yeah. And to show that like Forrest is misogynistic and Riley is a good guy. That's literally it. That's yeah. all that we've seen. Yep. And then to th- uh, we were just talking about like Olivia. Oh, Olivia. Olivia. Yeah. And then I'm, we were just talking about how beautiful Olivia is, but she doesn't serve any other purpose in this episode besides painting the or drawing the picture of the gentleman other than right. sleeping with Giles. That's the only other thing she does in this episode. So you, you have another person of color who comes in basically just to be an accessory to prop up Giles' character. 
Right. Well, Olivia, this is the second episode she's been in, and she will be in a future episode. So she actually does – I mean, she isn't fully fleshed. I will agree with that. The thing is, is that – and this is something that we've like we generally have talked about is the black characters that they do put on the show generally are pretty good characters. The problem is, is that they – they kill them off. They don't give them full-fledged arcs. And because of that, anytime that you do have a person of color on the screen, it's like so jarringly apparent that they're the only one there that it makes that anytime that you do something to them negative stand out even more. And then it just becomes this vicious cycle. And so the show does get slightly better with that as it goes on. But that is probably the biggest flaw of the Buffyverse and of the show in general is its lack of inclusivity. The fact that it just does not write well um, or cast people of color. That's also something I think about given the location of the show. Like I've been to, like, you know, we're all from California. Yeah. We we know the terrain. There'd be way more like Latino, like classmates just around. And there would be more, especially if they are in like, kind of like Northern of Berkeley area there would be right. a lot more like Filipino people as well. Mm-hmm. There's a giant Asian population in uh, that area of California as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so the show, when it's writing its characters, like you look at Kendra, you look at Olivia, you look at Forrest, they're not, they didn't write them racist. The The fact that they don't have any other POCs, they don't have full-fledged arcs, makes it almost inherently racist in the way that they're portrayed. Because you're looking at the general, like what they've been doing the entire series, and it's just it's re- it's a real shame. Yeah, honestly. and it's also like, why does the character of Forrest have to be black? Like, if Maybe others just not writing Riley like very well. a quota of having a black person in your show. Mm. Yes, that's true. Maybe Riley would be less boring if he wasn't white. <laughs> but exactly like why couldn't like riley be cast of like from a man of color right i mean it was the 90s so that was like super Uh, i know i know these conversations we're having are very 2020 i know yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. joss could not get it green lit because he was gonna cast cordelia as black and Mm. the network told him we will not air your show if you have a black cordelia and so he ended up having it yep that's but crazy. then again, think, about, think about Cordelia. Cordelia is supposed <laughs> to be like, the resident, oh, okay. the resident mean girl, the bitch. And so it's like, yeah. so you're already typecasting her anyway. You know what I mean? That he's like, oh, we're gonna make the bitchy character, the black character. That's still a racist stereotype. Yeah, I think yeah. that's actually probably a good call to not make Cordelia. <laughs> but oh. I don't know. I love yeah. Cordy, so I, I'd be okay with it. I'm just saying, it, it's a good call to not make them a stereotypical like bitchy yeah. black character. Because there was a ton of those in the nineties too. Where like oh, the yeah. one the one girl a yeah. part of the friend group who was bitchy was also the black girl. Like all yeah. the like rom coms and stuff in the nineties. I was literally was about one. to say. Yeah. Um, back to the episode though. Um, I really like the change that they made. So this scene was heavily changed from the script. Um, they had Riley just talking to another guy in military jargon instead of having them go to the elevator, which I really like that choice that they made in the episode because they passed the sign to show them, hey guys, you pass that sign every single day. You should have known to take the stairs instead of the elevator. I noticed that as I was watching because they did hover for like, it was like three to five seconds of just like what would have been yep. blank action, but it did highlight that sign. And then it paid off. It was the setup for one of the best jokes. <laughs> right. 
And so we go into the basement. We see that that Spike is <laughs> spending the night and staying with Xander, and he's like taunting him the whole time. He's like, uh, he's like, why are you tying me up? He's like, because you'll bite me. He's like, like I'd bite you. He's like, oh, you would. And then he's like, I'm very supple and juicy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what a nummy snack. <laughs> Spike is just like, okay, Xander, yes, you are very bitable. Like, tooth for tooth, because he sat there and he was like, oh, Xander, which are we? Honestly, if I was Spike and they tied me up, I would be talking the entire night. Like, you ain't gonna get no sleep. (laughs) Like, I was dying because Spike is literally the literal manifestation of your intrusive thoughts when you're trying to go to sleep at night. (laughs) Oh, for real. (laughs) Come at you while you're sleeping. Except now you have your inside voice and Spike telling you what you did wrong that day. I was like, why did he tie him up so close to his bed and he's sleeping in the pillow that's closest to Spike? (laughs) I'd be sleeping in the corner of the bed. Spike would be in the (laughs) angle of the room facing the wall like he's literally so close to no, his no. Bed. okay the fact that spike had to let him tie him up because spike is definitely stronger than xander so he's oh, like you know that I'm he was like, like this will be fun he's like i have a plan <laughs> i love that they again they had um spike later like in the next scene or whatever he flips off xander uh-huh. it's just the british form of flipping off because it would get past the american censors which is just Smart. the best thing ever and then Giles' house is still researching. Olivia comes. They kiss. And then you see him drop his glasses on the part where it talks about the gentleman. I love that this is the last line spoken in the episode until the voices come back. It's, yes, that's enough small talk. What a what a great line. That is a really good line. So we see the clock tower that apparently um, Sunnydale has. And you see like hands opening up a box. And then you see all the voices leave everybody while they're sleeping. I like that this is kind of the subtle introduction to like the gentleman. You can tell something weary is happening, but you don't see them yet. This is the point in which I had a lot of opinions in the art direction. Because I do think it is very interesting and it's very well done. But for me, and I've actually been holding this thought until then, my vibe, again, in the vacuum, no context, knowing nothing about Buffy gave me Twilight Zone feelings. So sort of like episodic, the way that Mm. this is contained. And what I would have loved to see, and I feel like would have made it more interesting, is as like we see, like, you know, the shots through the town, everyone losing their voices, a sort of washout of color came along as well. So you got the effect of like a black and white silent film and also an Mm -hmm. homage to something like the Twilight Zone. Because I feel like there's a lot of things where like, especially the gentleman and the way that like the different confrontations happen it i feel like there was from an artistic standpoint in my mind there was a lot of missed opportunity and especially in the scene where buffy and riley do have their first kiss literally i had like three different images of like art from the like 1930s and 40s during world war ii where i'm like oh if this was black and white you could mimic like this painting and you make a reference to that it's well done as it is but i'm like the the art historian in me is like, I want a little more. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the silent film because that was one of their inspirations was to make it like a silent film because of the orchestral swell going over a silent picture. So there were a lot – there was definite nods. Christoph Beck and Joss Whedon worked together to make it feel like that. So I'm actually surprised that they didn't try to make it more black and white in feel. That's interesting too that you were talking about Nosferatu earlier, Sarah, because that was 
I believe the second ever film or first horror film, uh, either way, one of the first films ever made. And it, that character is iconic because the, um, the character of Nosferatu is extremely over the top with his gestures and with his body language, which is mirrored in the gentleman here. And it's also interesting that the first thing you see from the gentleman is their hands and mm-hmm. the way that they use their hands because they're extremely expressive with their body language throughout the entire episode. And so I, I just thought it was it was kind of telling that the first thing you see is their hands come into frame. Yeah. I also like I, I did notice the um the I guess the the as you would say the soundtrack to this was more cinematic and feel, but something I was missing, especially in like the first few scenes where we see Buffy and Willow walking through town and like seeing the destruction and watching everything, is a lack of of sound engineering of background noise because there was there's like a lady and a cop in the background and i'm like with the absence of speech all of those little things like the footsteps people breathing doors opening closing windows would be heightened and i was kind of missing that sort of atmospheric sound engineering in there yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if they wanted it to be more quiet because they wanted it to be more eerie, almost this like the absence of sound without voices mm. to highlight the fact that they're like, you know, I could see it going both ways depending on what you're trying to emphasize. You know, that's kind yeah. of the vibe that I got is that they're trying to have it be very still and very quiet. Mm-hmm. Like when people lost their voice, they're losing like their their primary method of of expressing themselves. So mm. yes. the silence is is supposed to be silent. But I, I know what you're trying to say, Catherine, where all the realistically, all the background noise and stuff would be heightened. But in this specifically, I think that they're trying to just make it as quiet as possible. Yes. And I think that leads into my next quote, which is music, sound, and silence. Um, and they talk about how they make the comparison between the scene where all the voices get lost and Kathy in living conditions trying to steal Buffy's soul. They use the same effect of the soul and the voice leaving the body. And the quote says, the cloudy mist used to indicate the disembodiment and theft of the voice directly mimics visuals used earlier in living conditions. This correlative pairing of images asserts the preoccupation that the voice represents something of the essence of a subject and its materiality brings to life an enigmatic element of the individual. This visualization of voice disembodied from its source but still live marks a clear appreciation for the voice as a material body in itself, a physical trace and a distinct object. So I think that they were trying to say that with people's voices gone, a aspect of their identity is missing. So by people being silent, it's a representative of people not knowing who they are feeling out of place and this sense of um, other, other than yourself. And so I think that was why they decided not to have the background noise so prominent. That sense of other is interesting because um, I think that we rely on our voices more than we realize we do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just normal for us. And this would be a really interesting topic to talk to someone who is mute, um, who relies on like hand, sign language and stuff, just to get their perspective on it. Uh, mm-hmm. because you probably do feel like a complete other when your primary method of communication is taken away. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting you brought that up, Sarah. Well, I think I think of you know Genesis 1 and 2, where it talks about how God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Like breath is associative with identity, with life, with um, identity. And so I think that like just that metaphor of, 
um, life and breath is just, it's really beautiful. And I like how they kind of make that into communication in this episode. And it's the season, the, the season arc is all about identity, which I think is just, it makes it even more beautiful. Um, so we start off with them waking up in the dorm room. And I like how it's like, you see from Buffy, Buffy's perspective, just like walking into the bathroom, doing her normal morning routine. I love that it's just so silent in this episode, other than those like moments of swell and like the beautiful music, haunting and beautiful music when the like gentlemen around. It's very like taunting when it comes out. And then when it's not, it's very like eerie and so buffy's walking and she's brushing her teeth she walks back in and then is is it correct sarah am i making this up that they actually spoke out the words but then like took out the volume or are they just being over dramatic with their mouth movements? i don't know imdb has said that they all actually spoke the words and then they took out and that you're supposed to actually hear willows i'm deaf like really really low if you you put up your volume but in all the other quotes that's the only place i've seen that and everywhere else i think they would have mentioned if they actually had done it everywhere right. else it says that everybody missed their cues because they weren't speaking so i think if they were actually saying their dialogues that would have been a problem so I think IMDb is wrong, and they've been wrong before, but if someone wants to correct me, they totally can. I also feel like it's much harder to speak out the words out loud when you're pretending like you can't speak, if that makes sense. So like even when Buffy's going like like she's having to clear her throat and be like, like, good morning, good morning, and then Willow's like, I'm deaf, I feel like it's it's harder to like actually say the words out loud, but pretending like you can't say anything at the same time. So yeah, I, I really I do feel like they didn't say anything. The way that they were using like over-exaggerated body language made it seem yeah. like they weren't actually speaking. Yeah, I'd like, I would agree. Uh, this is just a testament to like the actors because even when they were being like extra um, performative or whatever, it wasn't – cringy or cheesy at all like it really felt so natural it did come across as organic you know uh before we before we go past i was laughing at the scene though where buffy leaves the bathroom and this girl comes by crying <laughs> um and buffy's like yeah. and it's like if you've ever been to college that's like it's a daily true. occurrence <laughs> where someone just wanders by crying you're struggling. Like, yeah. <laughs> i like it because i feel like it's also a reference back to buffy's dream and a line in her dream where it's like no one will hear you cry and it's like this oh, girl yeah. is silently walking by. And you should hear her like sobbing a little bit, but you don't. True. So as they're trying to figure out being like, are we deaf? What's going on? Um, we jump over to the basement and Zender's like silently freaking out on his own while Spike is just chilling in the chair. He's like, you did this to me. And Spike's like, really, dude? Really? <laughs> He's like, his first instinct is to blame Spike. <laughs> um, oh, I was dying laughing because he tries to call Buffy and then both of them are like <laughs> and they have the same realization and then Spike just is like you freaking idiot my favorite <laughs> part was when eyes. he puts he puts down this phone and then like you can tell he doesn't want to look at Spike because he knows <laughs> I know he yeah, knows that Spike's so gonna good. judge him um and the initiative house um this is when Riley and Forrest are kind of like Walking down the stairs, everyone's freaking out. They go to the elevator, walk inside, and they don't have voice activation, which... That scene was hilarious. Honestly, so, so relatable that he forgets that. his access the code. He's like, in the background on the pad. He's like, come on, come laughing. on, come on. <laughs> yeah, he's like, come on, dude. <laughs> and Riley doesn't even turn around to see it. <laughs> it's just there. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> I was I was laughing hard on that one. I feel betrayed by the writers of Buffy. I know. I love the composition of that <laughs> shot where it's like Riley has his head in and then just over his shoulder we see that little notepad. It's just so well framed. It's definitely for us. Like that little angling oh, yeah. of force is that, only I feel for like us. that's the way that Josh included his wit and dialogue without having like speech actually happen. Yeah. Totally. I feel very betrayed by the writers of Joss to make me laugh at Forrest. I'm like, you guys, no, <laughs> don't make me laugh. I don't like him. I have no context that for part Forrest, so funny. I had a good time this episode. Um, and then they open up the elevator right as they're about to get like smoked out in there and Walsh just points at the stair sign. Um, back in like the lounge area, I love how, okay, did you guys pick this up at all? I never picked it up until this rewatch, but... I think that this is my head theory, my head canon. They set it up that Tara doesn't really speak much in the beginning of the episode, right? Did you pick this yes. up, sir? I never picked this up. I did. She yes. walked in with her books. Like she thought class yep. was going to happen. And then yep. she looks around and observes everyone's freaking out. And then someone drops uh, like a cup. And then she like kind of cues and then walks yep. out. I have never put that together that like she thought yep. it was a normal day. Yeah. I, I think Tara didn't know everybody lost their voices. Yes, it's such good storytelling because it's like we already know that either she like has had people in her life that to silence her, that she has maybe like um, some uh, confidence issues. Maybe she feels like she has no voice. Like there's so many things that they did to kind of cue us into Tara's character right away. And like I just have to applaud that. Like I, I, I sort of, again, experienced this episode in a vacuum. Um, it did tell me a lot about like who she was sort of in the beginning, and it felt like it reinforced the dynamics that we saw in the Wicca group. It wasn't just that like, oh, she's mm. like, yes, she she does experience some sort of oppression, or at least has not been her opinion and her voice has not been treated as valid or equal to others. And I feel like you see that in her timidity in the Wicca group. And then just reinforced in this scene as well. Well, and she's observing everyone else, kind of like how we are. Um, and I love how like everyone else is kind of like either freaking out or just staring at a wall. There, you see a couple crying, and she just stands there and she's like takes it in, and then she does action. Like even though people might view her as timid, might view her as yada yada yada, she's the one who is seeking out Willow. She's the one who's doing a lot of things, and it already just makes me like her. This next scene when they're walking down the street is really interesting um, because, you know, you have like a, the line in front of the liquor store and then you have a bunch of people outside like having a prayer meeting and then Revelations 15, 1, which is I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues and like the, the whole like seven, seven hearts, all this other stuff is really interesting. Um, and there was a really like neat – quote that I, I didn't write down, but I saw where someone was talking about how in times of crisis, there are three like major institutions that people run to for safety and comfort. And it's, you know, the government, and then it is something religious, 
And then it is, they, and I forget what the third one is, but it was something like comfort. Like you run to like the liquor store, everyone wants to get alcohol and like everyone's seeking comfort or they're seeking preservation, like, uh, like food and things like that and stuff. So it was really interesting. And just that one scene, like it showcased what the town was doing, but it was very realistic because people are going to gravitate towards something that's familiar and safe when they feel Yeah, especially in times of crisis. Everyone is looking for a way to cope. So you either do that by looking to an authority who says they are going to heal, control, take over, manage the situation, or you're going to go inside and say, no one can do anything, so I'll turn to drugs or alcohol or binge eating. Or even just someone who can give you answers. You know, the, the church may not even be saying that they're trying to control things, but they can just them saying like, oh, well, this is in uh, Revelation gives you a, a certain a sense of control because you're like, at least you know what's going on, you know, or you think you do. Um, so that may yeah. be another thing, another reason why people turn that out as well. So you see them kind of like eye a whiteboard spot. I'm like, look at you little entrepreneur taking up uh, advantage of the moment. I was so proud of that person. I'm like, yeah, that's smart. I literally was too. I was like, ah, you, you could probably sell them for more than $10 each, honestly. He wakes up. He's like, oh, I can't speak. You know what I could do? Make a lot of money today. <laughs> I would rack it up. They're only like 10 bucks. Capitalism never dies. Um, so they walk into Giles's house and they both have whiteboards. And then Giles is such a sweet little father figure in this scene. I was like, oh, he's like reassuring Buffy. And then like Willow writes, hi, Giles. And then he gives her all. I was like, oh. And then Xander's like snapping them to watch the news. And I just was like, wow, the premonition of this like news outlet. You know what I found funny about that scene? And Kath and I were laughing at it was, um, I keep forgetting her name. Gloria? Olivia. Anya? Olivia. Oh. Olivia's drinking like three <laughs> fingers of whiskey. And it's like 10 a.m. <laughs> She's just like, can talk, getting drunk. Poor Olivia. She can't leave. Oh, yeah. Well, she doesn't know. Like she just came in to, you know, to get her get her something, and then she's like <laughs> stuck and like she can't speak, and she's like, "I didn't ask for any of this." It's yeah. funny. I was because that scene happens as the uh, as the broadcast is happening. You know where they say that like, "Oh, it's just a freak breakout of laryngitis," and I said because Brian was like, "That's so much whiskey at ten a.m.," and I'm like, "Did you not watch? It's for her laryngitis." she's like nursing her laryngitis back to health she's like maybe if i just (laughs) (laughs) exactly you know alcohol kills bacteria (laughs) i mean not only was this scene disconcerting because of these covid times but also the fact that people were blaming vaccines i was like dang i guess there really is Mm -hmm. nothing new under the sun like the things that we're wrestling with that's what i was thinking yeah it's crazy well, and then Buffy tells him that she's going to be in town tonight, and then we switch back into the initiative, and then Walsh is using, like, a computer voice, says for them to go uncover and maintain order, um, which actually is not a bad idea, because then you, you we jump into the streets, and of course, people are going to be freaking out. There's going to be people probably looting, um, and there's people fighting, and then he just comes by and, like, breaks them up. And this part, when you guys are talking about silent films, this was the most, like, silent filmy part. And I know we talked about the kiss, but I'm more speaking of, like, the guys fighting. Riley comes in to separate them. But the part that killed me was, like, Buffy walks up, and, like, the guy grabs, like, like 
a bar and she like snaps his hand. (laughs) She just breaks his arm and continues walking. I love it. It reminded me of Napoleon Dynamite where he's like, break the wrist, walk away. Like, this poor guy is probably having the worst day of his entire life. She <laughs> just breaks his wrist. Well, also, we don't know what they're arguing over. We could have been on his side. <laughs> well, the guy did grab a crowbar to go and whack oh, no, Riley for sure. over the I head. don't condone yeah. that part. <laughs> yeah. Fair, but it was still funny. <laughs> How calm Buffy is. She's like, oh, just another day on the Hellmouth. Like, she's just so used to it. And Riley's like, hey, guys, maybe let's talk about this for a minute. Like, and Buffy's over there, like, you know, breaking this guy's wrists, screaming in names. pain, but no one can hear him. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. One of my favorite things that Buffy does is the parts that she doesn't have to do anything and just completely whoops ass immediately. Like, it's just my favorite thing that they have Buffy do occasionally because it's very rare because they want to show that Buffy still has like work for it, that her foes are like pretty strong. But every once in a while, when they have something very quick like this to show how strong Buffy is, it kills me. I love it. Um, And then they have this whole like communicating without communicating eye contact asking each other if they're okay and then they kiss like the 1930s so this um this is actually the first time we hear riley and buffy's theme song and this composition they have a theme <laughs> they yeah they do about riley and buffy. tabby <laughs> hey leah's not here she would agree with me <laughs> Leah's not here. Yes. No. Okay. But Christoph Beck um, composed this as well. And it's a lot more strings. Um, And I will go into more of their theme song a little bit later. There's just a lot other stuff to talk about in this episode. But apparently, Joss Whedon liked the theme song better than Buffy and Angel's theme song. He considered it more adult and a bit more strange and blue than the Buffy and Angel theme. So I don't agree with him, but it is what it is. I think you're just an angel. That is an opinion. (laughs) Okay, but did you know that Buffy and Riley had a theme? (laughs) No. Therefore, it wasn't. To be honest with you, I forget about Riley. (laughs) And then then season four comes, and I'm like, oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) But you knew everybody knows Buffy and Angel's theme song. Like, exactly. It's pretty iconic. So the fact that he, like, for, like, that he loved it more. I'm like, guys, no one even knew they had a theme song. So that's a little embarrassing to admit. Joss so. is really pushing him down our throats, isn't he? <laughs> He's a nice like guy. He punched Parker. And uh, I like the theme song better. So <laughs> we're like, well, okay, you're in charge, Joss. <laughs> Did Parker and Buffy have a theme song? <laughs> <laughs> For they had that stupid guitar music that they played when Xander and Willow were. <laughs> oh my gosh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> we're wait, having no. our affair. No, but they play that for multiple people. I mean, for for like Parker and Buffy's when they when they were making love. Oh my gosh, what was the song that was playing? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, we are, we are the lucky ones. That's stuck. Such that's been stuck song. in my head. Anyway, ooh, and then we see the gentleman floating. Oh, this. Oh, it's funny. As soon as they came on scene, Catherine goes, "Ooh, floaty." <laughs> Okay, so do you guys kind of want to know like the actors and the mechanisms behind it all? Because it's super, super fascinating. Yes, please. I, I thought was wondering about how they did that. Because the smiles on their faces are so large. Yes. Okay. So um, Doug Jones and Camden Toy are the two main actors. And then you have the rest are stunt doubles that did the other gentlemen. So Doug Jones 
um, had previous experience performing as a monster, and him and Camden Toy were professional mimes as well. This gave them an elegant grace, especially in their hand movements. Their floating effect was accomplished by suspending them from cranes with wires, which were digitally removed in post-production, or when you see their feet – they um or when you don't see their feet they pull them by dollies so anytime that you see them like their whole body including their feet that's cranes um the cast found the actors in makeup and costume to be terrifying in broad daylight that makes so much sense sarah as soon as you mentioned his name i knew exactly you're talking about yeah you he's know who well i'm talking about for, he's well known for being a super super great body actor he yes. um he was in Hellboy. He played the yep. uh, he played Abe in Hellboy. He was in Pan's Labyrinth. He plays the guy with yep. the eyes on his hands. Oh. Uh, he played the he played the mer, mer guy in The Shape of Water. Um, Crimson Peak. Yep. No way. Silver yep. Surfer. Yes. What? Yeah. He plays Silver Surfer in that. He's really, really, really well known as being an extremely mm-hmm. expressive actor. Dang! What a compliment. That was something I noticed. Because, like, the gentleman's body movements, like, we were joking about it earlier, like, the whole Uh finger wagging and, like, hand motions. But it didn't feel overly campy, which I feel like in a lot of Buffy Mm -hmm. episodes, things can feel very, like, kitschy. This, like, while it still had, like, again, it was, it. there's a comedic element that can be pulled from it. It was so seamless. It didn't feel very forced. Mm -hmm. You know what's interesting? I actually just Googled Doug Jones. Uh, he's playing Nosferatu in the uh, upcoming remake. Oh, with Anya yep. Taylor-Joy? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So it kind of comes full circle. That's super interesting. All right. So the main guy is Camden Toy, and this is his first episode on Buffy, but he will come back as the Gnarl and as one well, of- he's creepier to me than yes, the gentleman. I agree. Ugh, ugh, yes. I, forget, I cannot. I forget the Gnarl. He's in season we'll- seven. And then he also plays the um, Uber Vamp in the the epic fight in season seven with Buffy. Mm, yes, you could tell. Yeah. So this is his first episode, um, and he has a lot of quotes, but the, every single one is super fascinating. So he says, "By the time we got called into audition for Hush, they still weren't sure what these characters were going to be. I think they were still called the Laughing Men because there was no dialogue. There was talk with the producers. Well, can't we just get an extra to do this? Thank goodness, Josh said, "No, we need some physical performers to actually bring this to life. Because of that, they were auditioning really last minute." I got the call that afternoon from my agent who said they want to see you at 5 p.m. that night. Usually there's a day or two in advance, and I'm like, tonight? What about the script? And they said, there's no script. Just go. So I was like, uh, okay. The casting director and Joss were the only people in the room. They weren't recording any of the auditions. That was kind of what Joss did. He was in the room, and he made the decision. They asked me to do an improv where you float in, you cut this young man's heart out, and then you float back out with the heart. I'm like, what? Okay. And then they were like, oh, and they're smiling the entire time. So I do this kind of illusionary thing physically where it looks like I'm floating. I try to sort of glide in smiling and I cut the heart out. I finish the audition and Joss kind of starts waving at me, turns his back and goes, okay, thank you. Oh God, I'm going to have nightmares now. At that point, I thought either I've gotten the role or he thinks I'm a total psycho. (laughs) I was worried I blew it. But the next day I got a call from my agent saying they wanted me and that's the episode that I met Doug Jones. That's super cool. So then he says, there were six of us actually all together. Two of them were stunt guys, and the other two were Charlie Brumbley and Don Lewis. Charlie was the wisecracking guy on Baywatch Hawaii. When we were shooting, he was constantly cracking us up. Um, He said that Don Lewis actually did all the shadow puppetry work in Capella's Dracula. 
all four of us had a really strong background in physical theater, clowning, mime, mime, martial arts, puppetry. I think that's really why these characters came to life so much. Interestingly enough, it's only Doug Jones and myself that have our real mouths where we can smile. The idea originally was they were just going to have a plastered on smile. I remember thinking after auditioning for the role, this is so wrong. They hired me because I scared Joss with my smile, but I thought, hey, shut up. It's not my place to say. But as they were getting Joss to give the final sign off on the design, he was like, whoa, wait a minute. We hired Camden and Doug because they both scared me in the room in broad daylight with no makeup on with just their smiles. And now we're covering them up. And so they ended up having Camden and Doug use their real smiles, and they're the ones you see the majority on the screen. And then the rest of them, they had painted on smiles. I think it was a great call to have them do use the real smiles because it's way creepier. Yeah, totally. Um, so they they made like little veneers that they fit over their actual teeth, but it is their actual mouth um, that you see on screen, which is insanity. How did they even keep it in that spot is my question. Like, yeah, that's such like, good acting. Their face must have hurt afterward. Oh, yeah. So then he goes on and says, the very first scene that we shot as the gentleman was that scene where we knock on the door and the young man opens the door. We float in, cut his heart out, and our footmen are holding him down. So we shoot the actual door opening later, but the actual scene where we float in, we shot first. And of course, it's one of the few cases where as an actor, I don't have to worry about hitting my mark. I'm either on a platform that's on wheels, that's on tracks, or I'm on wires. I remember after the first take, the props person or someone went, oh God, after they yelled cut. They said, I can't believe the dialogue you guys are having and you haven't even said a word. That's when Doug and I were like, I think it's working. And then this part. So it was also Amber Benson's first episode as Tara, and she thought we were even scarier in person. The cast literally wanted to have nothing to do with us. After the take, they would just sort of walk away. Can you guys guess who the only person who was so that would talk to them? Uh, Allison Xander. No, Mark Blucas. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, what a nice guy. They said only Mark Blucas would say, hey, how's it going? Great to have you guys. Everybody else was scared <laughs> of us. Amber Benson's mother literally told us to leave her alone that she was really Aww. scared of us. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> By all accounts, Doug Jones is a sweetheart, like a super nice guy. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, they look terrifying. Then he says that they had to sit with the crew and Joss to eat their lunches because the rest of the cast would have nothing to do with them. (laughs) I mean, you're doing something right if that's the case, but I don't know. I just thought that was super fascinating just to hear like his background and like what all went into that. And the fact that they use their actual faces for that and not a prosthetic is just mind-blowing Yeah, I had no idea about that. That's crazy. And I feel like it really – it paid off. If they had gone with just stuntmen, it would not have had near the effect it does. And their their like uh, body language and hand motions really set them apart because they could have just been boring. They're, they're not talking. They're just floating by and then they kill people. But the way they interact and like the, the over the topness of their mo- mannerisms and everything is just, I don't know, it just hits so well for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the control they have over their body at all times is really crazy to watch. Yeah. It's also funny. Like you can tell that they love what they do. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. They were <laughs> and, like reveling in it. Yeah. <laughs> and that they're, uh, I don't know if they're like trying to be funny with each other, but it was, it came across <laughs> as funny to me. Um, when they're, I would like, be dying. Clapping to it with <laughs> at each other and stuff. And he's like, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> and all like the gentle head nodding and tilting. Yeah. Oh, I want 
to know if they came up with that all on their own. Like, okay, we're now going to have a scene, like just improv, do something. They're like, everybody applaud. And the script literally says golf clap. Everyone golf clap my achievement of creating or getting a heart. Like, well done, well done. I think what what does it for me is how slow their movements are. It's just perfect. Like Mm -hmm. even when they're like clapping, his head is like slowly going up and down as he's golf clapping. Mm -hmm. And then he's looking around. And then the main dude is like, he's putting his hands up like, I mean, you guys can't see, but it's like so slow, uh-huh. and he's like doing like the, like it's. He's just like perfect. no, 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 no. Do but do uh-huh. it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. Literally, he's, they say so much. I love that their movements are slow, and it's not slow in like a slovenly kind of way. Yeah, it's like in a calculated mm-hmm. kind of way. Yep. Totally. Um. So the next morning, Buffy's walking around the dorm room, and then she somehow sneaks into the guy's room as the guy's like hoarding off women or people to go and see like the dead body she like literally sneaks in like okay um and i like how like it's kind of one of those like typical like we have sensors so we can't show the body but it works in these scenarios where it's like leaving it up to the imagination I think it's kind of, we talked about this earlier, how like the gentlemen don't want to get dirty, but I think it's such a, an important choice. They don't have blood spewing out everywhere. Like you see the legs, but you don't see anything else. You could tell that like, it's almost as if the gentlemen have done this so much that they like know exactly where to cut without making such a mess. They know what to do in order to just kind of get what they need and then leave. Even like their their, his, their suits are not covered in blood afterwards. It's like they're saying- Yeah, they literally use afterwards. a scalpel. Yeah, it's not like they ripped them apart or anything. It's totally. very, very clean. Yeah, there's something a lot scarier about a monster or a human that uh, is in control, and that's what this this says. Kind of talking about the the slowness of their movements. They're very much in control. They're, these are not like mindless beasts that are rampaging and killing people. Like right. they're super yes. in control of what they're doing, and that takes the scariness level to yes. like. This is not an animal that we can mentally dominate. This is something that could even be more intelligent than us. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so in Jaws' house, they, they're they reading a newspaper talking about everything that happened last night with the poor guy. And then Olivia draws a picture, shows it to Giles, and then Giles takes out a fairy tale book. And then we scoot on over to one of my favorite scenes, the, the classroom oh, scene. Iconic. And I love how like much Giles is like drawing and sketching. And each of them, he doesn't need to. Like my favorite one is where he's like hearts and he draws three hearts around as if we don't know what hearts are. I love there's an entire slide that is just says then. And I'm like, that's the most dramatic (laughs) slide ever. (laughs) I love Giles. Okay. So I'm really excited to talk about this scene because this is where I'm going to talk about the music of the episode and i learned some really really interesting things i actually as soon as the scene started and giles plus the you know turned on the music i noticed what it is because this is one of my favorite pieces of classical music dance macabre so you probably know a little bit of what i'm going to say then so (laughs) dance macabre it is a tone poem for orchestra so it was written in 1874 by french composer camille saint Sains, Sans, I think. I don't speak French. Um, it started out as an art song for voice with a French text based on an old French superstition. So it was literally written to have someone say a scary story along with it. Mm-hmm. So the the story was an old legend about death appearing at midnight every year on Halloween. Death calls forth the dead from their graves to dance for him while he plays his fiddle. And you'll notice in Christoph Beck's 
uh, co- composition for Hush, you hear a solo vi- violin that plays in the song and plays in the background. Um, the story continues that his skeletons dance for him until the rooster crows at dawn when they must return to their graves until the next year. Um, the piece opens with a harp playing a single note D and it plays it 12 times, symbolizing the 12 strokes of midnight, which is cool because the gentlemen reside in the clock. And so I think a lot of Joss's inspiration for this episode, like it goes back and forth with this piece, having the clock, having midnight, having it, the skeletons, the gentlemen are all white, kind of like skeletons. Um, But even more so, the solo violin is also playing the tritone, which is known as Diabolus in Musica or the devil in music or the devil's tritone. And it was called that because it was so dissonant and it was avoided in Western music during the Middle Ages because they believed that it was evil. So Christoph Beck wrote a ton of tritones into the composition of Hush, kind of you know, as like a nod to this song that Giles is playing right here. And I know we've talked about it before, but Beck is also the composer for WandaVision. And WandaVision, the theme is completely composed of Devil's Tritones. And that was supposed to be like because of the Darkhold book and all the theories about Mephisto, the devil and all that other stuff. So I kind of want to play for you guys a little bit of WandaVision and then a little bit of Hush and I want you to mm. note the the comparisons and I want you to hear the tritones. So this is from WandaVision. Um and then this is the suite from Hush and you'll note the similarities. I just thought it was so interesting how you can tell it's the same composer, how he has tritones in both of them, but he somehow manages to make them so different because everybody knows the WandaVision theme song. It's iconic, but Hush stands alone on its own. And I just, I liked the comparisons and all that. Yeah, stuff, that's super so. interesting, sir. I, I think yeah. one of the reasons why I love it so much it's because it's also something found in a lot of music that is just in a lot of like creepy media. So like in a lot of, I was actually reminded of some, um, some parts of like Hocus Pocus as well mm-hmm. as like some Tim Burton films. And it's funny that you said Tim Burton because that was actually one of their references. They were trying to reference Tim Burton and then his composer, Danny Elfman, who often works with Tim Burton. It was him. meant to evoke images yeah, and it was meant to evoke images of silent film, but also just like that very like, I don't know, like horror-esque nature of Tim Burton films, which mm-hmm. is just really cool. I love how when Giles is just kind of like flipping through the different slides, um, Anya looks so like amused by it because she's like unfazed. She's like, oh, I was like a demon for thousands of years. Yeah, everyone this else is like, horrified and she's just like she's eating, eating popcorn. popcorn. <laughs> she's like, I've seen worse. Just like this happens every two to three hundred years. We got so much different physical comedy in this scene. Like we have like um, Xander's boobs one. We have um, 
uh willow's like oh me me and then she like guesses and then we have like buffy's like jacking off on and everyone just stares at her (laughs) it kills me every time it's so funny uh the xander boob comment too is like normally i don't find his uh jokes about sex all that funny but that just got to me i don't know it was actually well, he, he also was so sincere about it It wasn't like he was yeah. trying to be funny he literally thought it was boobs that's what makes it funny yeah he wasn't objectifying her he was just like uh-huh. boobies he was trying to be helpful <laughs> <I know. laughs> he's like i too like boobies <laughs> <laughs> so we find out in these slides that they can't kill them with um normal weaponry like swords or anything like that and then in the fairy tales um the way to kill them was the princess screamed once and they all died and then willow i feel like this was kind of smart she was like well she takes out a cd and he's like no it has to be live um i'm kind of glad that they address this because i feel like they're like for decades i could see people being like why didn't they just play music yeah that would have been a huge plot hole and so Buffy asks how she can get her voice back, and then they have the iconic Buffy will patrol tonight drawing. Where it's thick Buffy. <laughs> My favorite part is Sarah Michelle Geller actually came up with the idea to do the hip joke, which is makes it even better. Um, and then we see for like a split second Riley and Forrest getting suited up in the initiative to go and be normal, I guess. Didn't they, they say to like walk around and be <laughs> That's normal what I was civilians? Saying, like, and then like they're full getting suited up. Camo and stuff. <laughs> Oh, and and Riley, like, Catherine pointed it out, but Riley is carrying the most phallic gun of all time. Seriously? (laughs) I was like, like, as Sarah pointed out, there's a lot of other phallic imagery in this. And I was like, I have never seen a gun look so much like a penis in my life. (laughs) (laughs) It's his weapon. Um, Sarah, I'm curious to know what you think about the fact that, like, Giles drew a crossbow for Buffy's weapon, and then she left with a crossbow. Why do you think that? Well, I think there's a very simple reason, and it's because Joss's favorite weapon for Buffy is the crossbow. Um, oh, really? But also, yeah, um, she knows these guys can't be staked, so at this point, she just needs to go figure out how to kill them. And so my guess is using a stake would – be ineffective because you have to get close to them. You want something that's going to kill them from far away so you can get close to whatever it is they are hiding. Um, But also I think it was really for that iconic shot where Buffy and Riley are staring each other down with the crossbow and the gun because it would not have had the same impact um, with the stake. But I think it's supposed to be – it's supposed to evoke the image of the old versus the new. You have – the magic versus science. And that is what this whole season's conflict is, is science versus magic, which um, science, like we talked about before, is coded masculine in this season and magic is coded feminine. So it's masculine and feminine. It's literally Buffy confronting the phallic imagery, the patriarchy, all that stuff. And like it's it's supposed to show why their communication has not worked up to this point is because of those two things. They're just very fundamentally different. So it's interesting, even the way they're fighting styles. Like he's mm-hmm. very like, I mean, or I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but he's very surprised by her method of like execution. Um, along with him being surprised that the girl he is interested in is like literally kicking ass in front of him. And he's like struggling with like one monster. <laughs> that look he gives when she swings down and kicks. I love it. He like oh. looks at her like, like it's Buffy for the first time. Like we've waited to see him look at her like this this entire yeah. season because he's just kind of seen her as the ditzy blonde. Um, and then we see that Tara is writing down Willow's name and number on a sticky note and then leaves her room. Um, she's walking with a ton of books with her 
and then trips over outside. And then, oof, you see the gentleman floating behind her. And every time it creeps me out, I'm like, oh my gosh, even though I know she survives, it's like this whole scene, I would have thought for sure they set her up because they do this a lot, especially in the freshman. They have like the guy who's in the Mandalorian pop up and you're like, oh, a new love interest dies the next scene. Um, So like I would have totally thought that she wouldn't have come out this episode. Well, and there's no music in that moment. It's completely mm-hmm. silent. The suspense from here until they kill the gentleman is just fantastic. The way that they build oh, it up, so I couldn't take my eyes off the screen. Well, then she runs inside the dorms, and then we get a flashback real quick to Buffy um, seeing the gentleman floating around in a neighborhood, and then a monster fights her or one of the people in the straight coats or whatever. And then we flip back into the dorms, and poor Tara's like running banging on doors and i understand like being the person inside the dorm room i'm like i'm not opening that up for anything i'd be like taking like chairs and like lining it up on the door so no one could come in but kudos to willow like this is just like a like a tribute to the scoobies because it's like even in the face of like the possibility from willow's end that she could open up to the gentleman she ends up opening it up thinking somebody might need her help so kudos to willow mm-hmm um, she opens it up and then Tara runs into her and you can tell that she hurt her ankle right away and then they both start running. And then back at the tower, Buffy comes in to fight as um, Riley is also being wailed on by like multiple of these monsters. They're fighting, not noticing each other. And then, as Sarah said earlier, they both pull out their weapons against each other and have this realization moment. Ugh, that was really good. Say what you will about Riley. That moment gives me goosebumps. It's it's so well it's so built good. up. Catherine actually mentioned that too, that she was a little impressed uh, at how like cool Riley is about it. Like he just kind of, it's like, okay, th- this is what we're doing now. We're beating people up together. You know, mm-hmm. he just rolls with it. I'm so used to, especially in sci-fi from the eighties and nineties, when the guy superhero male lead character, you know, discovers that his love interest is actually good at fighting. There's usually a conversation in the middle of the fight or like a totally. small pause in the fight. They're really like, you were hiding this from me. Like, I can't believe mm-hmm. you. And he's like, I expect they'll have that conversation later. But he's like, he's like, you know what? Now is not the time. The Buffyverse, one of the things I really love about it is it doesn't fall into the stupid, overly dramatic Uh, we have a secret, we're not going to tell each other, and then the secret's going to blow up in everybody's faces. The show doesn't do that. Or if it does... Oh, it is so Or if it does, the secret is a big enough secret, and there's a justifiable reason why they wouldn't talk about it. And so I just appreciate they don't create drama for the sake of drama. Like it, so mm-hmm. like for Riley yeah. to discover this, it's very natural for him as military trained to just deal with that thing, like you said, that's there in the moment, and they'll have the conversation later. And even when they do have the conversation, it's very realistic, and he's pretty understanding about it. That's cool. Yeah, like if I was in the middle of a fight, and then all of a sudden Catherine just started beating people up next to me, I would be like, "What?" And then I'd be like, "Okay, well let's let's go. <laughs> we'll figure it out." <laughs> David's like turned on. He's like, wait, I need to focus on fighting. <laughs> I'm getting beat up because I'm watching her. <laughs> that actually would have been funny if they did that with Riley. Where that would be really he's, funny. He's just like enamored watching her and then all the dudes just jump on, on him. <laughs> it's like, oh, right. Um, so back in Giles's house, Giles and Spike are annoyed with each other. You know, typical. Passive aggressive. Um, <laughs> 
like cock blocking each other in. I feel like just for one episode, the fact that Spike feels the confidence to walk over and then just like grab the blood out of the refrigerator rather than having them like spoon feed it to him. I'm like, oh, growth. It's also like they're like, you know what? You're not not a threat. Whatever. You can have your your blood. Um, He drinks the blood and then he gets some blood on his lips. Um, as Anya is asleep on the couch and then Xander comes in and he kind of peeks up looking like he drained Anya's blood. And this is the moment of realization for Xander. <laughs> he like beats up Spike. <laughs> and I love how Spike is like, he's not fighting him back. He's just kind of like surprised and shocked. He's well, like, well, he very can't. <laughs> if he does, his chip will activate. So he's literally just trying to point at Anya like, I didn't. <laughs> he's like desperate. He's like, I, I didn't do it. Oh my gosh. Uh, oh, Emma Caulfield's acting is so funny because, like, as soon as, like, everything gets resolved, she's like, <laughs> sign language for sex. And then instantly everyone's <laughs> super uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Spicy face is my favorite. Did you see Giles, though? They, yeah. And they just, like, look around the room and then, like, look at uh-huh. each other and walk out. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia looks like, did you see? She was, like, all happy. She's like, oh. Like how sweet, and then Jaws is like, "I'm gonna throw up." <laughs> Jaws is like, "No, no, 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 Olivia, you have not been here for all of the nauseating details that have been going on." <laughs> Spike looks so like he's gonna barf too. Like the last shot on him was so funny <laughs> with the with the blood on his lips still. Yeah. <laughs> Back of the dorms, uh, Willow and Tara are still running like mad women, and then they run into a closet. They close it. And then um, they try pushing the vending machine, but it's too strong. And then what do you know? Surprise, The vending machine is strong. Tara has <laughs> magic as well. Well, okay. So I do I do want to point out, it's not a closet. It's a laundry room. And the last scene we had in the laundry, <laughs> in the laundry room was with Veruca and Oz. And so I think that that's significant. I think that's the moment that Oz kind of realizes that he's cheated on Willow. And so I think it's significant that Willow and Tara kind of have this moment in the laundry room. So, so they both, with their shared magic, move the vending machine over to block the door and then stare at each other platonically. Yeah, okay, Joss. <laughs> there's no friends. freaking way. <laughs> yeah, there's no way that that wasn't intended to be, uh, you know, sexual. It, it like, gives like, and know. they were roommates. <laughs> like, <laughs> Just witches hanging out together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this says, well, it, this quote says, they were unaware at the time that the relationship between Willow and Tara would become romantic, but Benson's performance and demeanor made up our minds for us, according to Whedon. The writers wanted to make the scene in which Tara and Willow moved the vending machine by working together sensual and powerful in a very empowering statement about love, that two people together can accomplish more than when they're alone. Whedon considers the scene one of the most romantic images we've put on film in the course of this series. Benson and Hannigan's chemistry was impressive enough that two episodes into their friendship, Whedon took the actress aside and informed them that the relationship would be turning romantic. So I'm like, okay, how did you make this? It, it, that doesn't make sense to me. How did you intentionally yeah. make this the most sensual romantic thing? So I think you might be right, Tabs. He might be co-opting it, like saying, oh, we intentionally mm-hmm. made it when that's just how it ended up becoming on screen, you know? And maybe maybe we're uh, looking at this differently because we know that the relationship becomes romantic. And even if this is the first time you're watching Buffy, like Catherine, like their relationship is was such a big deal because it was the first like mainstream gay relationship in a, in a TV show um, or one of the first. Um, it was the first long-term lesbian relationship on film. 
Was this one before Ellen or was it after? This was after Ellen, but this is like on a TV show. There had never been a long-term lesbian relationship. There had been like um, characters that came in and they were in a relationship for a little bit and then left. And then I know there was like um, the first gay kiss was over on – I forget which – it was between two guys. And it was actually with the guy who played Parker, um, believe it or not. I believe it was the guy who played Parker or the guy who played – yeah, Scott Hope. Um, it was one of those two actors. But um I think, actually, yeah. I think you've talked about it. I will say again, me experiencing this in the vacuum and with a lot of context, I did not immediately get romantic vibes. I could see it heading that way. But for me, I was more like these are two people in a crisis, and these are two people who especially in the expression of their power, there is a sense of community that neither of them have probably mm. ever experienced before. Mm. But they're like staring in each other's eyes while holding hands and stuff. Like it's kind of hard to not see that. <laughs> what? Do you not do that with your bros? No, no, definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, is that because of censors, they have to do a lot of witch subtext for mm-hmm. um, their their lesbian relationship. So mm. a lot of times when they are doing witchy stuff, it's supposed to really mean something else. So yeah, uh, but it started out with, you know, them supposed to be like, it was supposed to be a connection of two witches and then it obviously evolved into something else. Yeah, that's kind of how, again, that's how I read it. I could see it being flushed out and filled with more intentionally romantic, um, I guess, subtext and overtext. Mm-hmm. But in the time, I thought of it more as like, I saw it as trauma bonding on two different fronts in that they are mm-hmm. in a immediate crisis and also in that they are witches with power and as a result have lived lives that have been somewhat secretive. Yeah. Um, it's back in the tower. They're still fighting. I love how this like the smack dab in the middle of like before everything is fixed. And then <laughs> Buffy runs up the stairs and then I love how she just leaves Riley. She's like, he's fine. Um, runs up the stairs, <laughs> sees most of the jars. Yeah, on I was full. thinking about it. he's fighting like three guys, and <laughs> she's just like, yeah. Well, yeah. honestly, though, I, I kind of get it because it's like, well, he's clearly a soldier. He's fine. Um, I forgot that Buffy got stabbed by a gentleman. I was like, Ooh. I was about to say, mm-hmm. I didn't remember that. This part just absolutely cracks me up. Buffy seeing the box and her oh, being like trying to get Riley's attention, and then he smashes <laughs> it. And that look of self satisfaction, like, aha, I did it. Yes. It's like, well done. She's well like, done, really. you took She's out like, the trash. Oh, come on. You did the bare minimum. <laughs> <laughs> and he misses it the first time, too. He smashes that purple thing. I know. And he looks so, he looks up at her and he's like, <gasps> like, like when a dog, like, does a trick. That's exactly the same look he has. <laughs> Riley is 100% golden retriever energy. <laughs> What a good boy. Uh, <laughs> Which is what Maggie like, Walsh calls him all the time. Job? Yeah, she literally calls him a good boy during that dream sequence. Yeah. I was like, oh, awkward. Like, <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Riley has a praise kink. <laughs> Ew. He, oh, he, he would. He would. I believe it. <laughs> mommy issues. You could tell. It screams uh-huh. mommy mm-hmm. issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Music, Sound, and Silence had this really interesting quote. They said, In a television episode empty of human voices, save for several minutes of outset, Buffy's scream returns the diegetic world of Sunnydale and the televisual medium itself to its natural order, to a babble fest. And he 
he quotes this guy named Michel Chion. He's French as well. He is a French film theorist and has written essays on voice in film. And his book is The Voice in Cinema. Um, so in one of his books, he had asserted that the female scream, the woman's cry, represents a misfortune and a sexual vulnerability available for the pleasure of the male spectator. And Music, Sound, and Silence says that this takes that and subverts it. He says, Buffy's scream is more in line with what Sean describes as the male shout, imbued as it is with power and mastery. Buffy wields this masculine shout as she does the phallic stake. Both are her weapons for penetrating and obliterating the other, the monster, the demon. Critical work done on the violence and power of the speech act in the Buffyverse usually concentrates on the linguistic prowess of the Scoobies, constructing sharp, savvy dialogue as a combat tool. However, the resonance of the voice and its acoustic presence also mark an exercise in dominance and command for our heroine. Buffy's voice made flesh once again reanimates the vocal obsession of television, which I really, really like. I, I think I love the subversion of the male and female voice in this episode. It's interesting that you bring up the scream Especially like the sort of like the blood curdling hyperfem screen that you think of that is, you know, a staple in horror and thriller. It is part of the sort of like the theory of masculine sexuality being a tool of conquering because that is mm. it's a reaction of the the conquered, essentially something that is to be reveled in. By the conqueror, it is a proof of their conquest that they are succeeding in their mission. Um, and I like that it is, like they said, used as a weapon in this. Also, I do want to note too that Riley and Buffy struggle to communicate even when they don't have voices, and they don't really work very well together. Mm -hmm. And I think that, in contrast. You have Tara and Willow who communicate beautifully without voice. And I think there is a, there's something to be said there. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that, but uh, like we're all laughing at him not getting the cue, but like he, he literally, they don't communicate well. Like he doesn't get mm -hmm. that she's meaning the box originally. Um, and then Tara doesn't say a word and she doesn't even honestly make like a lot of gestures. She just like slowly reaches over and grabs Willow's hand. Willow immediately understands. And they also work together. Mm -hmm. Whereas Buffy and Riley are working very independently. They both fight. They don't fight together. They're yeah. both fighting their own villains. And when they do try to work together, there's miscommunication. Well, mm -hmm. even their style of like fighting is very different. Their choice of weapon is different. I just feel like this mm -hmm. is just hugely metaphorical for like fundamentally, they are just, they think of life very differently. Even the way they would execute the same mm -hmm. crises is the opposite. Or even in the moment of like, or, or um, we see both, Riley and Buffy not communicating on both coins of who Buffy and Riley are. So both on like um, normal Buffy and Riley, they don't communicate well. And then as Buffy the Slayer and then Riley the Initiative, they don't communicate either. So it's, I think mm -hmm. it's just they just don't fit in each other's lives. There's also mm. – I love the way they juxtapose the way the two couples have a recognition of each other's power. So with Tara and Willow – they literally are touching each other. They're looking into each other's eyes. They're holding each other's hands. And then with Buffy and Riley, they're literally pointing their weapons at each other. They're hostile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the lounge again, we see Willow and Tara talking. Um, 
she's talking about how she thought that if she went to go find Willow, they could do spells to kind of ha- get everyone's voices back, which I feel like I never thought about the reason why Tara was going to go and try and find Willow. Um, maybe I'm just not very observant about the small details of the episodes like this. I'm like enthralled by like the storytelling. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, but she's like, I think if they faced a witch, they'd run the other way. Talking about the girls in the Wicca group, you can see like she like she feels very at ease at Will and Willow's presence already, and is cracking jokes, which we love to see it, even though we've just met her this episode. I think both girls feel heard, and I think that's intentional yes. in an episode that was all about silence. Willow feels heard as someone who appreciates witch stuff and act like actual witch stuff, and Tara doesn't normally get to have her thoughts displayed and vocalized for everyone to hear. Well, we and we've seen Willow for seasons now, for years now, kind of struggle with the idea that she isn't really special or that she feels like she has to kind of resort with her powers in order to kind of feel like she has a place in the group. And the fact that that like Tara has seen her so far, yes, with her witch stuff, but like kind of observed her using her voice in the Wicked group and then says like, no, you are special is something that like you could tell Willow is has been wanting to hear from anyone mm-hmm. at this point who has seen her. And you could tell that Tara and Willow already have a connection. There was a uh, line that was cut out from Tara. Tara says, um, in response to Willow saying, seems like you're kind of powerful. Tara says, I'd like to be, I feel like I'm stuck, like I'm at the door and it won't open. And Willow says, I know exactly what you mean. And I was like, oh, they said that wasn't intentional. I feel like <laughs> that was very intentional. Um, and then at Giles's house, we have this conversation between Giles and Olivia. And they're kind of like talking about this whole side from Giles's life that Livia like has either heard about not taken seriously but now it's coming to head and he asks her he's like is it like too scary and she says I don't know and then we jump back into the dorm and then Riley comes in sits down on the opposite side of the room they don't even hug or anything too he just comes and sits down and then he's like I guess we have to talk and then it goes silent and blank yeah it doesn't even show them communicating at the end it was just mm-hmm. super interesting. And the body language with both of them is like kind of uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the discomfort is like, like something that would be expected in that situation, especially with the perceptions that they each have of each other. A massive wall was just torn down. And it wasn't just like, oh, there's a breaking of a perception. There is a whole new identity that, that has been revealed to both of them. And they're like, you need, they need to suss each other out now. They need to figure it out. And I really like that we have the conversation between Giles and Olivia right before because them saying, oh, is that a world you can live in? All that stuff is exactly the conversation that Buffy and Riley need to have. And I like that the episode leaves us going, are they going to have that conversation? Is it going to work out? We don't know. So Mm -hmm. brilliant. Like what you were saying earlier, Sarah, this would be a heck of a cliffhanger to leave off on like the mid-Christmas break. Well, in it, in like an episode all about communication, ending it on with like we need to talk after everything that's been not said and said, and then just leaving it at that is brilliant. I, this episode is just it's perfect. Though the fact that they delve into every single one of the characters, like Giles, even gets a little bit of an insight into him trying to move forward with Olivia, someone who's been try. She's been the only. 
only consistent thing in his life this season that he's had an identity crisis and the fact that she may not be okay with sticking around, that must be really hard for him. Um, so yeah, I just, I forget about that little moment every time because it's so overshadowed by all the other stuff happening in this episode. Yeah, Giles is kind of all over the place this season. Well, guys, that was Hush. That was very long, but I learned a ton from talking to you guys. I feel like I have a new appreciation for this episode. It's just fantastic. So rich, so full of subtext and metaphor. And I love kind of getting a peek behind the curtain, if you will, to see the mechanics that went in with just the gentleman, the music and all that other stuff. And I'm excited for moving forward because there's some really good stuff. But thank you, David and Catherine for filling in for Leah. I hope you guys will come back. Well, I know you're coming back, David. I hope you come back, Catherine. It was really <laughs> fun having you here. Any episodes where there's a lot of intentionally heavy sexual themes, I will I will stop. <laughs> <laughs> That's been pretty much every episode David's been on. So, you know, yeah, no right joke. up your alley. <laughs> I should have done teacher's pet. Yeah, no kidding. But let us know what you guys think. Do you guys love Hush? Do you think it is the best episode of the series? What do you think of Buffy and Riley's progression of their relationship? What do you think of Tara and Willow? Let us know. As always, you guys can find us at Becoming Buffy Podcast on Instagram, TikTok, and Tumblr. And you can find us on Becoming Buffy Podcast at gmail.com. As always, guys, have a great next couple of weeks, and we will see you.